Hello friends and welcome to a special bonus episode of Still Unbelievable. And if you are part of the Skeptics and Seekers family tuning in for this specific bonus episode, welcome. We are happy to have you. The show that you're about to hear is a conversation on free will between Val and Dale Glover, both regular voices over on Skeptics and Seekers. And if you wish to comment on this particular show, the best way to do that is to go to skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. That's skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. And sign in to the discussion board and leave a comment, say hello, or get involved. Uh, in the discussion in any way that you'd like. You can also reach out to the host of Skeptics and Seekers, David Johnson, at skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. The two conversationalists in this particular show are well-researched on the topic of free will, and David Johnson does his usual superlative job as a moderator and occasional uh, question asker and comment maker during the show. The reason that it is airing here on Still Unbelievable is that there's been a little bit of a kerfuffle, a dust-up, uh, some personality conflict over on Skeptics and Seekers, and it was felt that it was in everyone's best interest that this particular show on free will be aired here. It's something we're happy to do. David Johnson and I are lifelong friends. We have uh, authored books together. We've been on many podcasts together. David's a regular voice in the back catalog here on Still Unbelievable, and we are happy, most happy, to air this conversation between Val and Del Glover. Give it a close listen. I think it will be, I think it will be illuminating all the way through. Thank you for listening, and the next voice that you will hear is David Johnson from Skeptics and Seekers. Thank you for joining us. Well, hello, hello, and uh, welcome to an exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. This is officially the Skeptics and Seekers off season. We're done with season three. It's uh, over and done. It's behind us. It's the off season where I... Uh, get back to my regular life and I don't do shows. And so here I am doing a show. Um, I'm going to really going to do better this off season though. So there won't be too many of these. Uh, but this is one that we've been looking forward to. It was actually scheduled uh, for the regular season, but uh, things happened. We couldn't get it in there. And so I'm very happy to be able to do it now. This is the special with Dale and Val, two of the bigger brains that uh, we deal with. Uh, here on Skeptics and Seekers, and it's a good thing those brain sizes are what they are because we're dealing with the issue of free will. Oh, boy. Uh, so without any further ado, because honestly, in this subject, ado is all I can offer, I'm going to turn it over to Val and uh, then Dale will come in, and then the show will mostly be out of my hands. Val, take it away. Hi, David. Uh, hi, Dale. Hi. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm, 
I'm here, uh, I suggested a, a, a sort of talk about free will. And uh, whenever I, I, I come on the show, I'm always trying to term it more as a talk than a debate, because maybe it's because I just don't want to put that much preparation into something. And so I prefer it more to be closer to a casual conversation back and forth to, to uh, shoot up different views. And so um, I uh, am here to sort of talk about, and I guess defend uh, a view of free will called compatibilism. And um, I, 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 I'm going to sort of start off with a, state, with a statement that sort of sets the lay of the land as it were, about what the whole issue is with free will and how it sort of you lead to um, uh, the various views on free will. And then um, I can get to uh, discussing uh, compatibilism. And as far as compatibilism goes, uh, for me, I'm not here to say that I've solved free will, of course, or, or anything like that, or even that any philosopher has. Um, it's more that whenever I've seen free will discussed written about and when I've engaged in free will conversations, especially most of my free will conversations are actually with other atheists or naturalists and they get uh, into heated debates and I've always found that fascinating. Um, it is, it's, it's more like whenever I think about the subject of free will, I find myself falling into compatibilist trains of thought. It makes the most sense to me once you trace out the implications of uh, what's possible in the world and why and what is uh, consonant with uh, our, our normal modes of thinking about uh, the world that we live in and about ourselves. Uh, and when I, when I listen to free will skeptics, it just feels like I'm hearing mistakes. Uh, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that I can, you know, sort of prove free will by the end, but it feels like I, I want to clear some brush at least along the way to, to make some ground for a compatibilism. Whether we get all the way or not, I, I can't say, and we'll just have a common conversation. So, um, so I guess so, so to, to start off, a little lay of the land here. Um, so if we ask what free will is, uh, if you go to the various uh, philosophy books and, or philosophy references, you'll, you'll get variations of what free will is and uh, and very often you'll find places are defending a certain um free will thesis and so they're going to conflict and so it can actually be i found a bit help more helpful to just go to standard dictionary definitions or even wikipedia where really those seem to produce some of the most broad versions that sort of the average that seem to sort of correspond with what the average person may accept as free will. So if we just even take a Wikipedia with a little addendum I had, it's just free will is the ability of agents to make choices unimpeded. So it's pretty simple. Word choices refer to selecting from among possible alternative actions. So that's what thinking I have a choice generally seems to mean. Uh, I had a choice to either walk to work or ride my bike, it means that those are possible alternative actions I can take. I chose to walk to work, but I could have done otherwise. I could have ridden my bike to work. And it is the concept of I could have done otherwise and the concept of possibilities that arise from the claim I could do otherwise and what we could mean by that that really sort of is the meat of the free will debate, or at least it's, it's, um, it's the, it starts off the free will debate. Okay, so now why is there 
a debate. You know, what is in fact the purported problem of free will to uh, to begin with? So I'm, I'm just going to read a very brief opening uh, paragraph from uh, I think a classic uh, uh, philosophy text I've always liked, um, and it's the problem of uh, freedom and determinism. And uh, so the nature of the problem uh, it goes. The problem of freedom and determinism is basically a paradox. A paradox arises when two equally evident assumptions lead to apparently inconsistent results. What paradox is connected with the problem of freedom and determinism? It is this. Determinism is the thesis of universal causation, the thesis that everything is caused. On the other hand, the doctrine of freedom maintains that some of our actions are free. Both of these things seem to be true. We believe both that everything is caused and I'm sorry, we, we believe both that everything is caused and that some of our actions are free. However, these two beliefs lead to results that are apparently inconsistent. For if everything is caused, then so are those actions we allege to be free. But then they are the result of some causes which made us perform the actions, and therefore actions are not free. So in addition to believing that everything is caused and that some of our actions are free, we also believe that if our actions are caused, then they are not free. So that's the paradox in our ordinary beliefs. Uh, and and uh, what happens here is, uh, is those, are, those two intuitions seem to lead the dance. Um, I find free will it, to be maybe the single most maddening conversation um, where two sides just can't even understand each other. And, 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 it, and it just seems to me to be explained by the uh, strength of the intuitions that are operating here. And um, which side you go on free will seems to uh, come down to, generally, I think, which intuition feels strongest to you, I guess. So to go back to it, again, determinism is the concept of universal causation. Everything has a cause. And the implications are of unbroken causation stretching over backwards, ever backwards and forward. So it's like a line of tips over dominoes. So long as the dominoes at time T1 are causing dominoes at time T2 to fall, those dominoes must fall. So every event at this moment in the universe, including our actions, are being caused, that is our domino of our choice, is being pushed over by previous dominoes in the chain like everything else. Another way of putting this apparent inevitability uh, has been put this way, is that determinism is the thesis that there is at any instant exactly one physically possible future the one that follows inevitably from the chain of causation. So that really, on its face, that, that intuition of determinism seems to clash with our belief that our actions are free and that we could have done otherwise. How could we have done otherwise if there is only one physically possible future at any moment? And this is where the intuitions take hold. If determinism, the intuition of universal causation, really sinks in, then you can be pushed to say that free will is incompatible with determinism. Uh, your stronger intuition about the apparent implication of determinism will lead you to declare, sorry, determinism is true, therefore free will is incompatible with determinism, and free will must be false. It's a false theory. It's just not true that we have free will. And usually folks that, that go this way with their intuition to determinism are called hard determinists or hard incompatibilists. Um, and I tend to, uh, like, because there are various versions of this, I tend to use the phrase uh, free will skeptics, if you're skeptic about free will. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's, uh, there's the intuition when we are making choices 
that we actually can choose between, say, salmon or steak for dinner and really could have chosen otherwise. That just seems so apparent to us when we're making choices. It can seem just impossible to actually abandon that. And so if you have, if that is your stronger intuition that you can't seem to abandon, it can push you to that side. And therefore you'll de declare that free will is true. Therefore determinism must be false, or at least determinism is false in regard to our choice making. So both of those moves uh, that take people in opposite directions, determinism is true, therefore free will is false. And, and free will is true, therefore determinism is false, are called incompatibilist positions. Both hold that free will is incompatible with determinism. Only in one case, the conclusion leads to free will skepticism, that it doesn't actually exist. And the other incompatibilist intuition leads someone to the belief in the existence of free will and the, uh, and the rejection of determinism. And usually that, that type of uh, uh, free will uh, is uh, called libertarian free will, which we can uh, get to. Um, but there's a, there's a third position on free will, and it's one that, uh, in fact, the majority of philosophers actually take, and that's of compatibilism. And that is the thesis that free will is actually compatible with determinism, compatible with physical causation. Uh, and so that's generally what I, I hold to. And, uh, and um, the concept of compatibilism goes really far back and go by, as far back as Aristotle and uh, Epictetus in the first century, C, et cetera. Um, so just a note about compatibilism, uh, about compatibilism, free will being um, compatible with determinism. Compatibilism doesn't necessarily hold that determinism is true so much as that if that determinism, if true, doesn't threaten free will. And some compatibilists will argue that we generally want some level of causal determinism to be true to have free will. But anyway, so I don't have to establish that some absolute determinism is true, uh, that there's no indeterminism anywhere. Uh, it may be, in fact, that as physics seems to suggest, there is indeterminism somewhere in the system, a system at the quantum level, but even if everything is not fully or absolutely determined, we can say that the physical world at least seems sufficiently determined at the macro level that we interact at. So, you know, so long as we as physical beings are as physically determined as water flowing downhill or rocks falling to the ground or handheld calculators, that's enough determinism to raise threat uh, to our freedom, it would seem. Uh, let's see. Now, um, so for the purpose of arguing compatibilism, I'm going to assume this physical determinism of the type uh, an incompatibilist believes threatens free will. We are physical systems situated in the physical universe following all the same physical rules as rocks, water, starlight, electrons, what have you. And we can even postulate for sake of argument Laplace's famous demon. And that's the being who has a godlike view of events. Because on determinism, the previous state of the universe determines the next state of the universe. If at the beginning of the universe, or actually at any time in the universe, the demon knew the location and motion of every physical unit, every atom, etc., the demon can perfectly predict the next and all following states of the universe. That is, in effect, he could predict the future perfectly, and that would include all of our choices uh, as well, since we're just collections of atoms in the universe, too, in the same causal chain. But even that, says a compatibilist, that doesn't in the slightest slightest threaten uh, our free will, or at least free will, will worth wanting, as Daniel Dent would put it, uh, that, that will seem immediately counterintuitive likely, but it's actually, uh, a compatibilist would claim, what follows when you trace out the implications of our other beliefs and intuitions. 
um, it actually ends up upholding um, some of our basic intuitions of choice making. So any thesis of free will, especially compatibilist, has to answer essentially two questions. Uh, does it make sense within the context of physical determinism to say we have free will? Uh, or that is to say that we have real choices, that alternative actions are possible, that we are free to choose them, that the choices are ours, etc. Um, a lot of this boils down to say, is it, does it make sense to say we could do otherwise in a physically determined system? And then the second part is, if we can make the case that there is a sense of could do otherwise that is compatible with determinism, does this capture enough of what people generally mean by free will? And so I would say basically yes and yes. Uh, and it, in other words, we, we need to see what we actually mean when people talk about free will and to be careful to repute or correct only those portions of the folk conception that are actually wrong while preserving those portions that are true and useful. And uh, this is the last sort of flag I want to uh, uh, put in the ground here before I finish, um, uh, take a break as it were. Um, we have to be careful, I think, of mistaking um, the thing being explained, uh, mistaking the explanation with the thing being explained. And this is a conflation I see very ha happening very often in uh, incompatibilists um, who will say things like um, determinism would mean that free will is an illusion once you find out, you know, say that physical causation seems true. Um, what you're trying to explain is uh, generally the, the general um, experience of making daily choices. Um, so, you know, I could have, if I'm going out the door and uh, I see my bike there and I could decide um, to ride my bike to work or I could instead walk to work. Um, I have a feeling like I really could, both of those options are open to me, that I really could ride my bike to work if I wanted to, or I could walk to work if I wanted to. And if I choose to walk, um, I can look backwards and say, I could have, um, it really does feel like I could have uh, ridden my bike to work if I wanted to. So it's that sort of daily, and, and that expands to all choices, whether it's what's for dinner up to moral choices, um, this sensation of choice, of having a choice. Um, that's a phenomenon that free will, any free will theory is trying to explain. And so we can't conflate a free will theory or explanation with the phenomenon you're trying to explain. So uh, the danger of that, you can see if you for instance, in the old theories of uh, what it was for something to be alive, what would, what did life consist in? Well, there was uh, there was an observation that you had to explain. There really did seem to be a difference between uh, you know your cat when it was alive and your cat when it was dead. Uh, you know all the things the cat could do when it was alive, it can't do when it's dead anymore. And it does seem to be a real difference between what the things that we consider alive and things that aren't alive, like chairs and rocks and that kind of stuff. And um, the explanation was that uh, back then was that there was some sort of life force uh, animating things that made things alive, they'd be a land by tell. And uh, now when that turns out to be not true and it's uh, eventually replaced by something um, better, which you know, we might uh, call metabolism at this time, uh, scientifically, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that 
actually uh, life was an illusion, that it wasn't true there was actual life. It just means you've replaced the erroneous explanation with an actual explanation that um, explains it. You could say the same about um, sunsets and sunrise. Uh, if you, if you have to be careful about calling those illusions um, in the sense of being completely untrue, uh, that are dispelled when you come up with the right um, the the right explanation. So uh, you know when you find out that it's not due to um, to uh, ge uh, geocentrism with uh, the sun. Uh, the sun seems to the sun rises uh, and it goes over our head and then it sets uh, relative to the horizon. So it rises at the the phenomenon that we're observing is the sun rising. Um, in an angle relative to the horizon and setting relative to the horizon. Um, and that actually doesn't go away when you find out the explanation for that isn't that the sun is revolving around the earth. The explanation is actually that the earth is revolving around the sun and the earth is revolving. Um, so that's still there. Another example would be solidity. Um, uh, solidity, if you dismiss it as an illusion, you are throwing away uh, too many babies with the bathwater there because um, yes, if you, if you suddenly discover that, um, that, you know, something, if something looks solid to us, it looks like completely, uh, I guess the impression is completely contiguous matter, uh, matter that is completely unbroken, right? But then you find out in physics that, no, there's actually, there's actually a lot of empty space there in between them. And so some people can say, oh, well, uh, solidity is an illusion. It doesn't really exist. Well, no, it does exist on the macro level that we interact with it. There really is things to observe about the differences between things that are in solid form and liquid form and gaseous form. Um, and what, what scientists have done is simply explain it at a deeper level. That's why they've retained the uh, categories of solid, gas, liquid. And that's why you're going to have a very different experience still in the macro level if you decide to dive into uh, water that's uh, frozen solid versus in a liquid state. So, so I... And so we've got to be careful about saying this is what we've got to be careful about saying, for instance, a, liberta a libertarian version of free will is free will. I would say that people, people tend to come up with explanations for what um, free will is, uh, explanations for free will choices and say, well, if that's not how it happens, well, then we don't really have free will. I think that's an error. Um, I feel like I've already talked enough so so i, I can get to uh, uh other things uh, and explaining compatibilism more in detail but um if maybe dale might want to break in and say something okay so, okay go ahead dale okay so i'll just give like a uh, again a very brief introduction before i get into the main thing but i'm pretty sure david's going to want to give his intro for the hard determinism position before we get into all that. So, so yeah, basically Val has covered the different positions and that sort of thing and how- Okay, let me, let me just interrupt you real quick. Would you like me to just do my piece right now so that you can move in under it, interrupt it uh, with Val after your piece? Uh, I, don't have, I, don't ha I have surprisingly little to say after Val's speech. Uh, sure, yeah, that's fine. Okay, so- um, uh, I would say that a lot of my objections are, are moot, <laughs> frankly, at this point, because I think those 
explanations are fine, and I'm willing to accept conditionally uh, Val's uh, last argument that really what we're talking about is a, kind of a matter of semantics. Um, when we talk about whether a thing is free will or isn't free will. And so I will uh, hold that loosely. I would say though, that on a subject like free will, there is a certain thing we have in our mind for what that means. And I think it is fair to say that for the thing that most people are thinking about, when they think about free will, which is libertarian free will. I think it's fair to say that doesn't exist. And I, I don't think it quite uh, is fair to say, well, it does exist, but you should call it something else. The thing that they are thinking about doesn't actually exist in, to my mind, but I'm willing to hold that um, conditionally to, to see uh, how this, uh, how this goes. I uh, also would like, um, Val and maybe uh, Dale and his questioning uh, can can push Val toward it. The this modal logical instinct that we could do something other than what we have done. So this is a this is a challenging idea for me that I would need to have broken down in the conversation uh, because it's it's not something that we can experiment on. And the reason we can't experiment on it is because we have one universe and time moves in one direction, at least for creatures like us on our level. And so um, it's one thing to say, I could have worn a different shirt this morning, but those are just words that I'm saying after the fact. I can't go back and see if I could have worn a different shirt this morning. And so there's a, there's a little bit of an unfalsifiable uh, thing here. Where it's all post hoc that we say we could have done something else because we feel like we could have done something else. And so that this is another thing that needs to be unpacked for me. Is that feeling justified? Well, I can't say that it's justified because I don't know what is inside of that decision tree. In other words, how did I choose the shirt that I wore this morning? Uh, let's, let's say that there's some kind of calculus going on in my subconscious that I am not aware of and that I have no access to. Um, there may be, there may have been some good calculus for why I put the shirt on that would have in fact eliminated me ever choosing to put a different shirt on. But without access to that calculus uh, in that decision tree, I can't say uh, whether I could have done it or not. Um, and I think to, to assume that I could have done it is to assume the decision was random. But I don't believe in randomness, so that's part of the problem. Um, and so if the decision is not random and the decision is based on something, but that something is out of my reach and I can't tell what it was based on, then I actually don't have any right to say I could have chosen otherwise because I did choose whatever passes for choosing. And that had good reason in my subconscious to choose it. And so it could be that, you know, I thought if I picked up that other shirt, you know, maybe, 
maybe there's a snake under that shirt. And if I move that other shirt, I would die. Um, you know, none of this is true. There are no snakes in my, um, in my shirt drawer. But I'm just saying, if you don't have access to the decision tree in the calculus, you are, you are ignoring the possibility that you had some very good reasons why the choice was narrowed down to what it was. And you cannot say with any accuracy that there is another world where you would have made another choice. Uh, so it seems very easy and cheap to say that. Uh, but I, I need to see that spooled out to see how that actually works. Um, and so those are the, those are the only things that kind of sit with me and I'm just putting them out there, uh, so that as the two of you have this conversation, maybe you'll, uh, remember the little people and, uh, and address some of that. So, uh, I'm going to turn it uh, over to you, Dale. Can I just mention, David, can I, would it be okay if I mentioned one more thing? Because I realized that I think if I quickly capped off what I had said, it kind of sets things up better, uh, especially for what Dale is going to say as well. Is that all right? That's, that's fine. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn my mic off and I'm going to consider myself no longer uh, a host or moderator. Uh, and I just have the best seats in the house to watch the gallery and oh. might occasionally interrupt. So uh, with that, I'm going to let the two of you conduct your business. And I'll just say, David J., I, I did have this, uh, this is a common argument against compatibilism that it kind of entails fatalism. So yes, I, I will be asking Val about that and you know how that relates to people like G. Moore and stuff like that. So yeah, go ahead, Val. Um, uh, th thanks, Dale. Yeah, I just thought I, 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 essentially, I think I should have gotten to this point before I stopped. I should just say that, uh, so David's David's question about unfalsifiability of saying that I could have done otherwise uh, does seem to be true of libertarian free will, but isn't true of a compatibilist position. A compatibilist position would make it actually trivial to demonstrate that David could have worn another shirt done otherwise. He would simply put on another shirt to demonstrate it. Um, but uh, that's what we'll get to. Um, so and now I, I, I guess I want to say is that um, free will skeptics, basically, and libertarians, um, they tend to sort of end up in the same place in one respect. And that is the, their idea of figuring out what it would mean to actually be free. In a way, they sort of agree. So um, just a real simple uh, example um, uh, of libertarian free will, uh, there's varieties of libertarian free will is just as there is compatibilism and else. But, you know, somebody like William Lane Craig always makes things very simple. So I'll just say what he said. Um, so libertarian uh, free will involves uh, indeterminism of, of some sort. It's sort of a gap or division in the causal deterministic chain. So the division is only up to you. Um, so uh, as, as William Lane Craig put it, a Christian philosopher, uh, simply to be free is to be free of causal determinants outside of oneself. Your choice is up to you. It is not determined by causal factors outside of yourself. Um, so, uh, so and, end quote. So uh, someone must be the ultimate or originating cause of his actions. They have to be sort of causa sui in the traditional phrase. And God would be the ultimate example uh, in Craig's view of libertarian free will, insofar as there are no causal factors outside of God, when he exists alone without causing the universe. So there's no outside causal factors that could have determined God's decision to create the universe 
only God himself was the cause, making him fully responsible, etc. Uh, on this form of libertarianism, in a sense, we are all little gods and that we've been imbued with this buck stops here contra causality in regard to our choices. Uh, each choice we make is essentially a little miracle happening outside the constraints of the physical world, just like gods. Um, and compatibilists and free will skeptics uh, would say pretty much every version of libertarian free will involves a little unexplained miracle. But what, what I'm getting to about that is that, is that there... Um, both the uh, free will skeptic and the libertarian generally would say that you could, to be free, uh, to say that I could do otherwise um, in any substantial sense, is you could turn back the clock on the universe to the state at which you made your decision. And with all antecedent um, causes uh, being in place, every state being the same, you could have chosen otherwise. Um, and the, the free will skeptic ultimately looks at that and says, number one, that's just not how, the, how uh, physical determinism works, so it can't be true. Number two, it, it seems sort of incoherent uh, to even say it, so free will isn't true. And the libertarian goes on to say, no, no, that's coherent, and that's essentially how things work. And, you know, I think sort of both of those are mistakes. I think, I think that simply does not represent how we are actually reasoning when we are making choices. And that's what I'll get to, but the floor is to you, Dale. Okay, so I think a lot, a lot has been said in sort of setting up the positions already uh, and where we stand. So yes, I take a libertarian free will stance. I think that that's the only logical and uh, properly basic beliefs tell us that this is the common sense position. Um, so yeah, basically in the show, Val wants to have his view of compatibilism sort of under evaluation. So this isn't so much going to be about me defending libertarian free will. I've done past shows. I think I've done about three or four shows giving my take on that. Um, but obviously there will be discussion points coming up uh, to highlight the differences between us and sort of probe Val as to why does he take a compatibilist position on these various issues and that sort of thing. So the main difference I see is, look, uh, David Jay is a hard determinist or an, he's that version of an incompatibilist. He thinks that true freedom and determinism uh, of whatever sort of Val is taking the physical determinism route, which I'm sure David Jay would take as well. Um, they agree fully on that front, um, whereas I don't. I take an indeterministic. I have these little miracles that are inputted with every free will choice. Uh, so that part is true. Um, basically, the, the object of today's debate isn't going to be over the nature of determinism. So questions about, you know, Andrew's view on quantum indeterminacy, that's kind of beside the point. We're, we're saying, what does it mean for an agent to be free? What is the nature of freedom? And that's where uh, I think the dispute is going to be. David Johnson would say, there's none. There is no freedom. Um, Val would say, well, no, there, there is of a certain type. Uh, and that's where he gets into his, you know, his illusion, illusion uh, type example that we'll get to and that sort of thing. Whereas for me, I say, no, it is absolutely genuine um, and it's incompatible with determinism. So I would take the route of denying, definitely denying physical determinism, but also even uh, determinism more generally in terms of our free will choices. 
Um, so that's the positions in a nutshell. Um, I guess just, just some opening questions. So we're probing Val's view here. And I just want to, oh, uh, oh, sorry. So one last thing. So my plan of action to probe Val's view is to go over the five conditions for freedom and the differences between compatibilists and libertarians on that front. And I've got several questions for Val. So what are those five conditions for freedom? Well, Val has mentioned one, probably the most famous in the secular literature, which is what I'm calling the ability condition, um, otherwise known as the principle of alternate possibility. And there's a whole host of well, what does that mean and what does that entail? The second is the control condition. Uh, in order to be free, you have to have some measure of control. Um, compatibilists would agree fully with me. It's just a debate on well, what does it mean to have control? What's the nature of control to count as freedom? Uh, the next one is the rationality condition. Um, so there's there has to be a rationale or a reason behind your free will choice, and there's some differences there. The next is well, what's the nature of causation? Val, Val mentioned in his debate on Pora this that he was a causal determinist, and his opponent Aaron Fitzwater uh, agreed with me that he look the libertarian free will doesn't deny that there's a sufficient explanation or cause necessarily. Um, it for, for our decisions and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, okay, so sorry, I lost my train of thought there. But um, yeah, so the, the next one is the the nature of causation. So there's differences there. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain a bit as we come to each section about where I think we would differ. Uh, and then finally, the fifth one is the person as an agent is necessary for um, the nature of the choice, you know, going back to Chisholm and uh, that sort of thing with agent causation versus um, what I think Val goes for. So that's my plan of action. We're going to ask those questions. But before we get into those five sections, I just want to get to know what type of compatibilist you are a little bit. So um, first question that was interesting take. So you went with physical determinism. Um, not all philosophers have gone with that specific version. Uh, so I know G. Moore does, for example, but um, other ones ha have gone for like psychological determinism or a more general. Why, why is it you think that physical determin determinism is needed and could compatibilism survive even if you didn't go for that? Um, well, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily making the case that uh, physical determinism was needed, that, but rather that uh, free will would be uh, freedom would be compatible with uh, physical determinism and that simply uh, physical determinism uh, of the type generally seemingly described by science seems to be the case so we can basically go with that and, and that that's taking into account like I said the uh, quantum indeterminism and how uh, I'm talking about the type of physical determinism that is generally used in science to uh, predict things like the behavior of, uh, of uh, motion of atoms, rocks, et cetera. So that's what I, that's what I mean. It just mean, you know, if we're going to go with how the world seems to be, seems to work uh, on a scientific account, then, uh, and, and many people find that threatening that I think we're completely compatible with that to say, uh, you know, I could have done otherwise I could do A or B or I could have done A or B. Awesome. All right, cool. Um, all right, so, so you answered two questions there in terms of incorporating the quantum indeterminacy question, so that's great. Um, now, in terms of types, um, would you, 
classify yourself as a classical or a contemporary compatibilist? I, I think I know where you stand, but um, I don't. I don't know, but um, I would guess probably more contemporary because I think uh, you know I, I converge from what I can see with Dennett, and also get certainly you've got some of my initial thinking from Dennett, and so uh, I think he's pretty uh, contemporary. So I'm presuming contemporary. Awesome. All right. Cool. Um, and, and sorry, just for the audience, you want to just explain the difference there? Uh, if you don't mind, just take a couple minutes. You'd probably be better at explaining the difference, so go ahead. I'm, 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 you're, you're more of a philosophy student these days than I am. Very well. All right. Uh, so, so yeah, basically, the classical compatibilists would say uh, that it's, it's all about, freedom is all about bodily action. That's what it's, it's based upon, whereas uh, contemporary or hierarchical compatibilists um, they would say, well, look, bo body action is neither necessary nor sufficient um, for freedom. And they point to certain counterexamples like kleptomaniacs or drug addicts and that sort of thing where the right, body, yes. exactly, yeah. So, all right, cool. So, so that's great. Uh, last sort of general get to know you type question. And this one's going to be really important. I, again, I think I know uh, based on what you said and, and prior conversations where you stand, but for the audience, uh, there's a difference between hard and soft compatibilists uh, uh, yeah like where do you stand and why I'm I'm actually not sure what label I will end up with um, you can tell me by the end of it if you'd like I'm I don't know that it's gonna be too helpful right off to uh, label it um, but uh, so I'm not I'm yeah I don't know okay all right well let me ask this then. Um, do you see it as at least possible that it's a possibility um, that libertarian, something like libertarian free will um, could be true? Is it at least possible? Um, is it possible? Um, I, is it possible? Well, I mean, it's possible in the sense that it could be wrong, yes. Um, but it doesn't, seem feasible um, um, like it's like uh, I guess that's how Dennett put it in a good way like uh, philosophers or even theists or, or whoever can come up with the, the specs for free will and then it can be up to a free will theorist to put the specs into practice but whenever you try or whenever I've seen the specs for libertarian free will try to be put into practice it seems not to work and to just um, to sort of uh, uh, bloom forth with sort of incoherencies and, and sort of non-explanatory power. So, um, so yeah, it, it doesn't, uh, I don't know about impossible, but it just doesn't seem feasible, I guess might be the word. Yeah, yeah, cool. That, and that's what I expected you to, to say, right? Like that's what the, your whole thing going back years is this random objection. And that's, an objection that says, no, look, it's just not even possible. Uh, it, 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 libertarian free will just can't exist. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. If, if it's incoherent, it's not possible. So you would, you would fall in the hard, I would categorize you as the hard compatibilist type. Okay. Um, yeah, personally, I don't know. But um, yeah, I'll let you speak for yourself. You're not 100% you're not comfortable with that label. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so... I'm curious now, uh, so compatibilists have uh, specific, uh, 
now we'll get to this when we get to the five sections. So, okay, so let me get to the five sections of comparison based on the conditions for freedom. And this is starting with the most important, the ability condition, otherwise known in the secular literature as the principle of alternate possibility. Um, and I'm not promising I have the answers to these, by the way. <laughs> so, well, I'm, I'm trying to keep it very, hopefully I'm trying to keep it very simple. Mm -hmm. I know the audience doesn't appreciate when I go high tech and stuff like that. So I'm doing my best to shorten this, keep it sure. you know, helpful for the audience. Um, so um, I'm curious then with the ability condition, are you familiar with G.E. Moore's case uh, for compatibilism? I know G.E. Moore, but I don't know his case for compatibility. Okay, gotcha. So, so this is going to relate to what David Johnson was asking about before, what he wants to know about, his objection to your view. So G.E. Moore, he based, okay, what, what's, what is the alternate possibility or the ability to do other than we do, or at least to will to do other than we do? There's a distinction there, but um, what is that grounded in? What is that based in? And for Moore, it's based in modal, other possible worlds. Look, uh, physical determinism and or causal determinism, whatever you want to say, is true. Um, but uh, if there's an, it's possible that there's another uh, world where conditions, say 1066, uh, William the Conqueror loses the Battle of Hastings or whatever it is. Um, and because of that, we come to today and you make a different choice. You do otherwise or will to do otherwise than what you actually do. And he says, look, that sense of could do is sufficient uh, to have the ability, to, you know, to have freedom under this ability condition. So um, David would object, is, first of all, my question is, is that acceptable to you? I, I imagine it would be. And then how would you respond to David's objection? You know, some people, well, isn't that sort of a, leading to sort of a fatalistic notion? Okay, well, geez, I guess this really starts off in the crux of it. And my answer could be pretty long because it really, I guess, it, it gets into uh, compatibilism and what I would mean by could do otherwise. So you want me to just go? Yeah, uh, yeah sure. Okay. Um, okay, so, uh, so the description you just gave of G.E. Morris, um, it was a little ambiguous to me whether it is, it's one I would uh, accept. I'm not sure if it meant precisely what I would be saying. So maybe I should just sort of say what I mean. So, um, so if, uh, if, if I, if David wanted to put on, uh, let's see, if David uh, put on one shirt, he had two shirts he could have put on, and, uh, and he puts on one, and they're both on the bed, and he's signing between them, like, which shirt do I want to put on? And he puts on one. He's, he's, thinking, uh, he's thinking that he, he could wear either shirt A or shirt B. Um, th that is possible for him to do. I, I can put on shirt A or I can put on shirt B, and then he's you know, surveying his desires, which one does he want? To wear and he decides for whatever reason that he wants to put on shirt A, the checkered shirt. Um, and so he puts on shirt A. And, and, uh, but then he also thinks, um, but he could have put on shirt B. Um, so that is sort of a basic instance of deliberation and choice making. Uh, and I would 
say that it, that what he's thinking there is true. Um, the mode in which he or any of us are thinking when we are deliberating and making our choices, um, we are actually uh, thinking uh, truths. And that is why it does seem true to us that we could do A or B or, or could have done A or B. Um, now, uh, how is this? Um, so if it's because uh, it, it's, it's, it's close to what you were mentioning about G more, we're generally thinking in the form of uh, sort of counterfactuals and, and, uh, and conditionals kind of thing when we're, when we're, uh, we're, we're like, if not explicitly, we can, they can be explicit in our, our minds, but sometimes they're implicit. But, you know, so counterfactuals, uh, conditionals are, 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 are conditional sentences or ideas which discuss what could have been true under different circumstances. So uh, from, you know, Wikipedia has it, if, if Peter believed in ghosts, he would, be, he would be afraid to be here. Or I would say, you know, if I had placed water in the freezer, it would have frozen, uh, that kind of thing. Or if I had wanted to order dessert, I would have ordered dessert. So now this sort of goes back to my, my problem with the notion of pop freedom and the notion of possibility tied into it that free will skeptics and libertarians think is required for something for a free choice to be possible. So the idea that um, under precisely, you know, if you wound back a decision to the same state of the universe, uh, every cause, intestinal cause in place, you could have done differently. Basically, the idea that you could, that in order for something, in order for it to be really true or reasonable to say I could have done otherwise, it has to be that I could have done otherwise under precisely the same conditions at the same time. And what I, uh, what I and most compatibilists would say is that that number one is pretty much incoherent but, but in a way more important, it's just not how we do and ever could think about the world, about our actions in the world, about what is possible in the world and what's possible for us to do in the world. We're just not thinking in, a, in that very strange metaphysical mode when we are thinking about choices. And to sort of what, what we're doing, like to, to say that I could, um, if, I'm at the, if, I'm, if I'm at the gym, uh, I picked up the 40 pound, 45 pound weight, and to say I could, uh, I could pick up the 50 pound weight, or I could have picked up the 50 pound weight, I uh, submit that those are just absolutely regular, basic, uh, empirical claims of the same type that we make about anything in the world. Uh, the, the same say that uh, water could be frozen if it's uh, put in zero degrees Celsius, that kind of thing. It's, um, it's the only way we could think about the world. So, uh, you know, we're, we're basically, we're creatures, uh, it seems anyways, uh, just except we're sort of traveling through time. Everything else in the world is traveling through time. Um, we are never, ever in the, in the position of, of uh, learning what happened um, with at one point in the universe 
uh, with all things the same and running the experiment of, of showing that it could have been otherwise. Uh, every, it, it, that's just not a, a standpoint from which we could even reason about the world. It's impossible. Um, rather, the fact that we're continually falling through time and everything is changes, it forces um, us to reason uh, with a certain level of abstraction that nonetheless is capable of let's just uh, let's just apprehend and uh, and transmit the truth. So, for instance, uh, uh, you know, just take water, uh, the water in my my cup right here. Um, I can never do. I can never understand the nature of water. The, the way I understand the nature of water and what's possible isn't to only to simply know what happened to water once under exactly one condition. Um, it's to know uh, what happens with water under relatively similar conditions or relatively different conditions. Um, and that's essentially how how science works. So, um, so the, the water that I'm looking at is sort of traveling through time. It's changing constantly. It's not exactly the same water, but it's, it's, it's essentially has the properties enough that I can identify it still as the same thing, water. And so if I put uh, my glass of water in the freezer at uh, zero degrees Celsius and it freezes, then I am discovering something about the nature of water that I'm going to uh, used to predict the nature of the next thing that is water-like enough that if I put it into a similar enough condition, it's going to freeze as well. Uh, if I was stuck wondering about what was possible with water only under one condition, for instance, the condition it's under now is that it is in uh, warm air. Um, I will never know that water can freeze uh, if it's under... Uh, if it's under the, the condition of warm air, I would, I will always, every experiment is taking something that happened in the past and inferring what is likely to happen in the future with something that uh, is put in, in essentially similar conditions, but not exact conditions. And um, that's how you find out the nations. And also you find out the, about the nature of things and, and putting them uh, in different conditions. So if I put water uh, over a flame, it's going to boil. So I've learned something else about water. So we, we are never in a position, like I said, to reason from the standpoint that uh, where all conditions are the same. Um, and so that's, therefore, we're always jiggling. We have to jiggle conditions in order to gain knowledge about what is possible for something. I have to accept jiggling conditions. I have to accept that um, that from the ex previous experiment I did with putting water in a freezer, that the next conditions I put in are not going to be precisely the same. They're jiggled a bit. It's a different day. Uh, it's a different day. I'm, I'm slightly different. Everything's slightly different. But the, the but the details are similar enough in the necessary ways to draw a conclusion about the nature of water and what it is possible to do with water. What's possible for water? It's possible for water to freeze, put it in zero degrees. It's possible for water to boil if you put it over a flame and a pot, that kind of thing. And so when we're making a decision about something, like I'm going at the door to, uh, and I'm deciding whether I can, uh, whether I'm going to ride a bike or walk to work, um, what I care about is my, my powers in the world. 
um, what's possible in the world and uh, what, what powers I have. And I do that by jiggling conditions such as if I want to, uh, can I do this? Or I want to do that. Can I do that? Uh, and when I look back on the decision, if I wanted to ride my bike, could I have? Yes, I had the power to. If I wanted to have walked, could I have? Yes, I, I could have had that power. So it's really just, to, it's, it's really about understanding the nature of the world, what is possible. And we do that by allowing for actually different conditions uh, and uh, when we're making those abstractions. And, um, and what's powerful, uh, what powers we have in the world, and we jiggle those conditions as well. So um, if, I, if I, do I have the power to raise my right arm? Yes, I'm raising my right arm right now. Do I have the power to uh, refrain from raising my right arm? Yes, I do. I'm not raising it. Um, did I, uh, could I have risen my right arm? Yes. How do I demonstrate that? I'm raising my right arm now. Well, how does that demonstrate that it was possible I could have raised it? It's because I'm raising it. It's because just like placing water the next time in the, in the freezer, I'm raising my arm under conditions similar enough to give me information about the powers I have in such conditions. If you change the condition enough, like I'm in the middle of a tornado or somebody strapped my arm down, well, then that's, then I can no longer make that extrapolation, but I can, uh, to simply, it's just a plain old empirical claim to say that I could raise my arm or not, or that I couldn't have raised my arm or not, in the same way that we apply that same thing to scientific inquiry and literally everything else that we are reasoning about in the world. So that's what I'm trying to say. Awesome. All right, thanks. So, okay, so under this ability condition, I have three things left to say. So I have one more question, an interesting question that I think you highlighted. Then I want to give my take on the differences between libertarians and compatibilists on the ability condition or on this principle of ultimate possibility, then I have a last final question. But before we, before we do that, David, this was your part. This was the question you wanted uh, to have addressed, to have Val address. Uh, did he do so satisfactorily? Uh, do you have any further follow-ups? Because th this is your thing that you wanted to ask him about. Well, uh, so I don't want to bog the show down on it, but no. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with that line of argumentation. And I think that Val presents it uh, quite brilliantly, just not convincingly for me. So yes, I understand that we don't normally reason that way. Uh, so if, if what you're saying is, well, you know, humans are bad at abstract reasoning, I agree. Uh, you know, we're, we're very straight ahead reasoners uh, when it comes right down to it. And so we do have the, the sense that we could have done something differently. And I, I, it's, that's a very strong intuition. But it is an intuition that we have been able to experimentally exploit uh, so many times that I don't, I don't see how one could be as convinced as you are about it, Val. So for instance, just, just as an example, um, let's, let's take a hypnos hypnosis condition. Uh, you could plant a suggestion, a hypnotic suggestion in a person's mind uh, that, you know, 
every time uh, they saw a sunflower, they would sneeze and blink three times. Uh, so this is this is a sub- suggestion that you plant uh, when they're in a highly suggestible hypnotic state, um, and then they're now awakened and they go about their life and uh, they're passing uh, the home and garden section of a store. They see a prominent sunflower uh, out there doing what sunflowers do and they sneeze uh, and blink three times. Could they have done something differently? Well, of course the intuition says Um, they could have not sneezed. They could have blinked twice, but in fact, they couldn't have because their internal mechanism that tells them what to do at that time has been tampered with and to the extent that we can hardwired to do that thing. Now, the only difference is they are unaware of the hypnotic suggestion, but their being unaware of it is irrelevant. They're, they're believing that they could have done something different is irrelevant we can exploit the fact that they could not have done anything differently. And, and we can demonstrate that. Uh, and, and so you might say, well, I'm cheating because I'm, I'm then giving an example of a condition that's not normal. But I, I, I think the only thing you can say is that I am giving you an example and letting you know all of the conditions so that you can be consciously aware of them. And in real life, we are not consciously aware of the decisions. And so we might have some reason for not putting on the red shirt that is just as good, just as strong, just as hardwired as the person who sneezes and blinks three times uh, at a hypnotic suggestion. The only difference is, in our example, we know about the hypnotic suggestion and we don't know about the other subconscious thing. and so I, I cannot actually accept your position on the basis of our ignorance of the causes. Uh, there are causes and we are ignorant of them, but it doesn't mean that just because we don't know what made us raise our hand at that moment or say this thing or put on the shirt, it doesn't mean that there isn't a high hardwired cause for it. And I think that what you were leading too heavily on is the intuition that there is not a hardwired cause. And that intuition no. I think is extremely faulty. No, no. So no, no at all. Um, so that doesn't get to what I'm saying. Um, and it, and, and it started off right at the beginning where you said, where you're saying, well, we really feel like we have a choice between this. And then you sort of went on to say, essentially, but we don't. You wanted to give an example where we don't. What I'm saying is is that feeling that you could actually do, uh, that you do have a choice, that you could take either action, that you could have t- taken either action, that's true in the case where you actually have an ability. Um, so you could, uh, I'm sorry, you do have an ability to wear different shirts or whatever. Um, you don't have an ability to. Well, how do, you know, how do you, but, but you don't, how do you know that? How do you know that I am not hypnotically you, uh, you, presupposed to wear the shirt that I am wearing? Because you're just, a, you can demonstrate it. 
because it's like I say, okay, uh, remember that any talk of what is possible for us as on my account is, is basically uh, we are trying to understand what our nature is, what kind of powers we have in the world, therefore what type of actions we are capable of taking. And just as we want to know what the nature of anything else in the world, what the nature of a frog is, uh, what is possible for a frog to do, what the nature of uh, fires or water, and you find out the nature of these things by experimenting, right? So now in your, uh, in your, so if you, if you wonder, do I have, can I lift the 45 pound dumbbell? Well, how do you find out? You go and you, you lift it. Um, can I lift the 50 pound dumbbell? You go and you lift it. That's how you find out. And, um, and so your example of person with the suggest, um, so it, it, you, you're basically, you have to demonstrate the power to do something. Um, that's the power of freedom you have. You can be wrong about the power you think you have. So uh, for instance, in the, the, the sneezing in the sunflower thing, if I think that I have the capacity to sneeze or, or refrain from sneezing in the presence of sunflowers, um, I would be, uh, if that's true, then I would be able to refrain from sneezing in the presence of sunflowers. But I could be wrong that I am free in that regard. It could be the fact that uh, a suggestion is put into my brain and that when I tried to not sneeze um, in the presence of sunflowers, I couldn't help but sneeze. In that case, I discover actually, no, I am not free with, in regard to that uh, subject. That's how, you discover, that's how you find out which ranges of freedoms you actually have to do. You demonstrate whether you have the freedom to do X. If I, so I, I hope, uh, did that land? Well, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's working, it's still kind of working around what I'm saying. The only, the only difference here that I, I don't think that you're uh, fully uh, acknowledging is that in the hypnotic suggestion example, we know about the hypnotic suggestion and we can attempt to consciously control a test to see what we can do. No, but it doesn't, but it, it doesn't matter whether it comes from a hypnotic suggestion or not. That's irrelevant. Okay, but it, in real life, though, we don't go around consciously testing to see what we can do unless there's a reason to do it. So when you put your shirt on this morning, I don't think that you went through a conscious test of, could I put this other shirt on? You put the shirt on. That's right. um, you know, and so you don't actually know uh, that you could have done the other thing. You weren't, you weren't doing A-B testing. We're not walking through life doing A-B testing. Uh, and we are not aware at any given moment what our brains are capable of at that moment. So yes, I know that I have the ability to lift a 45 pound weight. Um, How do you know that? I, I know it because I have lifted 45 pound weights. That, that said, that said, if someone put a 45 pound weight in front of me right now and said, uh, lift it, I don't actually know if I can or not, because at that moment, my brain might misfire. 
I might not be able to lift it. Um, and so I can't, I can't fully accurately predict that I can lift it. And I can't just wave off the experiment and say, oh, no, I know I can lift 40 pounds because I've done it before. Um, and so you, you are assuming, I think, a lot about, about the, the brain state of what we're calling choice simply because in the past, in similar circumstances, you have done things that seem like the opposite thing. But what you don't know is if any given moment, any available, any, you know, menu of possibilities is actually open to you or not. And you're just assuming that all of the menu of options are open to you. Um, and in the face of examples where it, it certainly wouldn't be open to you, you think they're open to you and you think you've decided, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put on this shirt or I'm going to buy that uh, brand of cereal. Um, but if we were to interrogate that moment, it could be that we find out actually, nope, you couldn't actually, you couldn't have done anything else. So you could be wrong about whether you could have done it or not. Uh, and you're not, you're not, I think, acknowledging uh, how wrong we could be in any given moment about what we could do. You're, you're, I think you're relying too heavily on past inference and um, intuition. But that, that said, I don't think that's going to change the further conversation. And I, I know that Dale wants to move on from here. I, I, um, I just have to address that because it gets so into exactly what I'm trying to get across. <clears throat> so what you, um, you're not taking on board there is, once again, that the claim is a standard empirical claim we are physical objects in the universe like everything else, right? Um, and so what you're doing is you're special pleading um, uh, that uh, in order to have uh, sort of confidence in what we could do, we have, it seems like you're almost saying like, well, we have to have, you know, almost absolute knowledge of what we can do, but we don't have absolute knowledge about anything. Everything is just confidence levels based on past experience. So, I mean, it's like saying like, it's like saying like, well, you know, if I put water in the freezer, I don't really know that it's going to freeze so long as it's zero degrees Celsius. I don't really know it's going to freeze. All sorts of logical possibilities could happen. An alien could stop it, or maybe we're completely wrong and suddenly a physics changes tomorrow. Like nobody reasons like that. You just say, no, we've got enough standpoint built up to have reasonable um, expectations built on past experience of what seems to be the nature of water that it will freeze. We don't have to be so, absolutely sure about it, but we yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying, any, I'm not saying anything remotely like that. And one of the things that's, that I think no, but you were, you, might... you were when you were saying that I don't know if I could pick up that, uh, that, that uh, 45 pound. So but me, you, do, me... you do in the sense that you have every expectation from past experience that you in all probability can. So the idea me, that you can't absolutely know is, 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 is just doesn't matter. Well, let me put a bug in Dale's ear because I, I want the conversation to go in this direction eventually, but uh, okay. is to, dis to discuss the nature of what a choice is. Oh. Again, this will, be a, this will be a thing that I will be very quiet about. Uh, but well, you're talking about water freezing. That's not a choice. That's, that's matter uh, being affected by environment. Okay. Um, I would argue that actually 
what we think of as choice is very similar to matter being affected by environment. But Dale would not, in fact, think of it that way. And I think that you, with your compatibilist notion, are almost thinking about choice the way Dale would think about choice, um, which is something that's outside of the matter and environment. So that you, you're saying, well, but it, it has this other thing that it could do. Water does not have another thing that it could do in freezing temperature. And, and we know that. Um, the, the difference is we know the, the narrow range of uh, what can happen with water, and we don't know uh, the, the range of our own uh, thoughts and choices because we, we are assuming that we have more than we actually do. Um, you know, I can, this, this happens all the time with people. They get into accidents, they, they kill themselves on you know, bicycles, skateboards, um, any number of things because they have a great deal of confidence in their abilities because they've done it a million times. They know what it feels like. They know how to ride. They, um, they have good balance. They're, they're fine. They don't need the helmet today. Um, they didn't need the helmet yesterday. Bang, they're dead. Their confidence is not equal to uh, the physics <laughs> of, of uh, one moment after another. Yes, and, they can be wrong. Yeah, and, and so in the same way that you think that you are confident that you, can, that, that you could do another thing in a different physical moment, um, I think is equally unjustified. You simply do not know, and you have to take account all of the things that are acting on this thing that you would consider choice in the first place. And so the nature of choice becomes important in this conversation. It's, that's a part of the conversation that I'm going to step out of because I'll be honest with you, I don't understand the nature of what a choice is. I would just say that it's, it's a physical, I am a physicalist and a materialist. I, I see no reason to speculate that it is anything else. But as a, if I am right, and if it is purely a physical material thing, then it is also determined by physical material things. And if it's not, if it's, if it's something else, then I think that leaves a lot of room for libertarianism uh, as, as a thing acting in opposition to matter and environment. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's a good intermission. I will give it back to uh, you and Dale. And uh, you can call me uh, when needed. I'll go sit in my comfy chair. All right. All right. Cool. And David, that, that's the whole point of what I'm going through. So you, by the end of this, I'm hoping when I go through five conditions for what it means to have a free choice, I'm hoping that you'll, ah, that's what, it, that's what a choice is um, on Val's view versus Dale's view. And you can decide that sort of thing. So, so yeah, that, that's what I'm attempting to do. We're, we're looking at the first aspect. Okay, well, in order to have a free choice, there has to be this ability, this alternate possibility that a person has, a free agent has the ability to uh, do otherwise than what they actually do, or at the very least to avoid problems, to will, to intend to do uh, other than what they actually do. So this is the first aspect that, that we're kind of going over. But um, all right, cool. So not to waste too much time. So Val, before I, before I explain my take on the differences between us, I have one last question um, for you about your grounding of 
compatibilism and, the, and what is the grounding for our ability to do otherwise. So you kind of gave your take on GE more. Um, I wanted to get your, you kind of mentioned that there's issues, uh, you know, we're approaching this metaphysically. Most philosophers approach this ability condition as a metaphysical condition. Um, but there's another philosopher that I think you'll might appreciate, uh, Dr. Susan Wolf. And for the audience, I'm going to be on my RSM blogs, I'm going to be posting up all these papers so you can go and actually read them and that sort of thing. But Susan Wolf in 1980, she had a asymmetrical hybrid version of, of combining libertarian free will and compatibilism, a very famous paper called Asymmetrical Freedom and that sort of thing. And she said, look, you guys are missing the, the whole thing, uh, getting into metaphysical qualms about what it means to have the ability. Really, it's a condition of moral value. That's what's fundamental. That's how we base someone's ability to do other than they do. So she would say, well, look, I'm a full-on determinist or compatibilist when it comes to doing morally good actions. So, so this has theological ramifications, you know, God is God free and stuff like that. You'll, you'll see the relevance here. And she'll say, we're totally determined when it comes to doing morally good actions and that sort of thing. The compatibilist view is, is true because um, in order we do the, the condition is you have a good, morally good and sufficient reason to do other than you do or something like that. And in the actual world, if you do the morally good thing, well, you're, you're already acting on the good and sufficient reason. So the, the only way you could have the ability to do otherwise is if you appeal like G more to a counterfactual world or something like that. But libertarianism is true if somebody does an immoral thing because they're not acting on the good and sufficient reasons that are demonstrated in the way that you talk about with your bells, right? Uh, so let's say the, the example she gives is somebody, uh, oh, I should go to the hospital to visit my friend and do what's, that's the moral, I have good and sufficient reasons to go and visit my friend in the hospital, but I'm lazy. I'm going to stay home and read a book. So there, there's good and sufficient reasons in the actual world. And that's demonstrated from prior experience. We, we know that it would be good, you know, because last time we did go and, and stuff like that. So it's, I just wanted to throw it open to you. Have you ever heard of these sort of hybrid views? And what's, what's your take on Susan Wolf's view of, of grounding the ability condition in morality rather than a metaphysical thing? Well, I, I, actually, I, I guess I didn't make it clear. Uh, I, I believe I mentioned one point that I'm actually trying to not talk about metaphysics. Um, my position is that... Um, that when we are making choices, we're not doing metaphysics. I'm trying to ground that right in the empirical world, I guess, just as I, I, I think, if I got that right, as Susan Wolf is. If that's what she's trying to do, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say it's a mistake, essentially, to, um, to think that, that there has to be a metaphysical explanation uh, that would grounds our, our freedom. And that, and that, that our, our, our freedom, uh, that is our, our understanding of what is possible, what our powers are, uh, is, is, arises from and is completely consonant with how we explore everything that is possible in the world. Um, it's just standard empirical thinking is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, okay. Um... And if you, I mean, I, I mean, I can... Like, can we get to, we can get to morality and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and also, I mean, it doesn't even, I mean, it doesn't even on, on a sort of compatibilist sort of view. Uh, like I said, it's sort of uh, what matters for our freedom is what powers we have now. 
Um, and, and it doesn't even necessarily matter what the antecedents were or the explanation of how we got here. Um, so you could, um, you could take me um, and, uh, you know, and ask, you know, do I have the ability to pick up this cup right here? Yes, I do. I can pick it up and put it down. Do I have the ability to refrain from picking it up? Yes, I keep my arm on the, on the armrest. And then uh, let's imagine like another version of me um, is re just recreated instantly uh, in, a, in a world atom for atom just like this, but it popped out of nowhere with no intestines. Um, what matters for free will is simply that that version of me has the powers I do or not and can demonstrate the powers that I think I have or not in the world. So I don't know if that does. I, well, I think, I think you kind of, there's a slight misunderstanding. Uh, again, uh, yeah, when you read the paper, I'm, I'm probing you, so, so that's your answer, but you, you wouldn't, so, so Wolf is a, in, is a libertarian free will when it comes to immoral yes. actions, and she's grounding that in, so, so you're saying, yeah, you, you would agree with that. So you are, when somebody does something bad, you're a libertarian free willist? Uh, that doesn't sound what you would say. No, I wouldn't. Okay, so so yeah, so there's a bit different. There's a bit of a difference then. Oh, for sure, it's libertarian. Yeah, yeah, and, but it's it comes down to the fact that it's the, the morality of the action. If it's immoral, it has to be libertarian. Why? Because there, it's the condition of the ability is grounded in having a good, morally good, and sufficient reason to do other than you do. And there is a good and sufficient reason for that guy not to read his book, but to do other than that and go and visit his friend in the hospital in the actual world. You don't have to postulate possible worlds or something like that. So if you ground it in the morality, then you, you have to go, yeah, li libertarian free will is true. Um, now, the vast majority of philosophers like myself would disagree with grounding it in, mora in moral action. That condition of moral value is meaningless. I, I mean, there are, we have free will in non-moral matters all the time. So I, I think approaching it metaphysically and or physically like you do is is the right way to go. But I just wanted to throw that out because there is some interesting... Well, I, I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm misunderstanding something because I'm not understanding that as libertarian free will. Uh, uh, libertarian free will. I mean, like, so on morality and uh, I guess compatibilism, you know, I'd say sort of morality is what we ought to do. And, um, and then you can look at the commonly accepted proposition uh, in moral theory that, you know, many hold to, not everybody, that ought implies can. The idea being that uh, it only makes sense to say we ought to do X so long as we can actually do X. It makes no sense to tell me I ought to disobey the physics of the universe if I can't do so. But also, it doesn't seem to make sense to say I ought to do X if I... Uh, can do X, but couldn't do otherwise. So just as it wouldn't make sense to tell me I ought to stop obeying the physics of the universe, it would be just as strange to tell me I ought to obey the physics of the universe because I have no choice but to obey them. So what is telling me I ought to obey them actually add? So it seems we want to reserve ought for cases where we have choices, uh, the capability to do otherwise. And so long as we have the option of doing or refraining from what we uh, ought to do, that establishes a justification for introducing what we ought to do and the basis for moral reasoning. And I think compatibilism establishes a sense in which it's possible to do otherwise, our powers in the world. 
and then it makes sense to start talking about uh, grounding morality and what we can and can't do. And like you appealed to uh, Susan Wolf there, and whether we have uh, the the reasons um, which uh, entail we ought to do X over Y, uh, et cetera. And, and that gets uh, that gets into other things about how uh, we we not only have basic reasons for actions, we can represent our reasons for the action to ourselves. We have sort of higher order selection processes where we can survey our motivations and our reasons and see which ones cohere most with our, uh, uh, with our beliefs uh, about and reasoning about the world and, and which ones make most sense to follow, that kind of stuff. So I, I, I mean, I think uh, uh, it's all compatible with uh, physical determinism and I don't see any problem with anything. All right, cool. Uh, so, so yeah, just wanted to probe your views. So just for the record, both Val and I think that Susan Wolf is wrong with her condition of value ultimately once once properly understood. I, I'll, I'll just say, yeah, please read her paper and, and on my website and let me know what you think once you've read her in her own words. But um, you, you know what, Dale? I actually, um, because you mentioned an email, I did in an email that you were, might bring her up. I actually went and took a look but I didn't end up getting through the whole thing. I only got through part, which was actually lots of her um, uh, giving her uh, rather good arguments against libertarian free will, right? Before she, you know, ends up solving it, as you just explained it. But uh, but it's worth looking for as much for just seeing some succinct arguments against libertarian free will before she brings her own solution. Yeah, yeah. She she fully agrees. She's a determinist when it comes to morally good action. So so absolutely. Yep. Uh, cool. Um, all right. So. Here's my plan for the last little bit on the ability condition. So I'm just going to give a brief my take. Val's already hinted and stuff. So the fundamental differences I see on the ability condition between compatibilists and libertarians like myself and most Christians are, okay, so for Val, he would offer a one-way uh, or what's called a hypothetical or a conditional ability to do otherwise. Um, so had some condition um, been different, you know, let's say 500 years ago, King Henry VIII didn't chop off Anne Boleyn's head or something like that. So the causal chain could have led you to do other than what you do in the actual world. Uh, so this is known as a hypothetical ability or a conditional ability on the condition that some external feature is different or something like that. Some external condition is different. You would have done otherwise. For libertarians, on the other hand, no, this is a categorical ability or... Uh, as Val hinted at, it's a dual ability. We both have the ability to, to do or to will to do, and also to refrain to do or to uh, truly uh, choose to refrain to will to do. And it's it's what Ch Roderick Chisholm calls the it's a branch branching notion that I heard Val. So at any given time t, I have multiple possible options in the actual world that I can choose to actualize through the exercise of my free will or something like that. Um, whereas for Val, no, there's, there is only one possibility. Given the conditions in that causal chain are what they are, it will come out um, the same. You'll make that, that choice every time. It's determined in that way or necessitated by those causal things. So that's the fundamental difference in how we see it. And the, question, the last question on the ability condition, rather than feeling, obviously I believe in this dual ability based on common sense experience, properly basic belief, but we also have scientific empirical evidence that backs us up. And I'm appealing to the Benjamin Libet experiments here. Mm -hmm. Usually this is cited against libertarian free will, you know, with the 
uh, readiness potential feature, that brain state arrives, then you become aware of your intention to lift your finger or not. But I, because we're probing Val here, I want to raise, actually, Benjamin Libet uh, scientifically falsified that by proving that there's this free want um, phenomenon, a, another brain state which allows us to refrain, you know, that dual ability to refrain, even after people have had this readiness potential, they become aware of their intention to lift their finger or not, they have the ability to veto that decision afterwards. Um, so yeah, my, my question to you, Val, is how does something like the free want ability fit into compatibilism as you see it? Does that provide any credibility for libertarians' notion of this dual ability at all? Uh, well, it's interesting you're citing Libet, right? Because he usually he's deduced as uh, evidence against free will, right? His, his, his original experiments. Absolutely, and that, that's why I'm appealing to him because it's that's the common view, but actually his scientific experience proved the opposite of, of what determinists want. Um, so that's why it's, it's cool to bring up. Yeah, well, I am... Um... Uh, I do remember reading also about that aspect um, as well, but I'm not recalling all the details, so I don't feel like I can comment really specifically on it. I don't see where <laughs> I can't. I, I don't see where it's established that there's some contracausal form of uh, action, and if somebody had actually scientifically established contracausal action. Uh, contracausal choices, I think it would have been a bigger story than, than, uh, than what you're getting. Let me, let me just uh, step in real quick. I'm going to use one of my coins here to interrupt and uh, get a clarification. Um, for Val, uh, the, uh, what Dale was saying, um, they're characterizing your, your thought process. I, I wanted some clarification on So, if uh, if we rewound the universe to you know five minutes ago, are you with me that you would do exactly the same thing? Yes. In the yes. rewind, okay. Yes. So so you're you're not suggesting that there's that there would be some way to pop yourself out of that causal chain and do something different. No. If, if you if you did it the first time, and you rewind it to exactly the same conditions, you'd do it the second time. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So so it, then the second time through, if if I can use some really sloppy language, you you would be a second time determinist. You'd be a you'd be a videotape determinist uh, because it's on the tape. And it's determined. And it doesn't matter how many times you watch it through. So the only thing that we're actually differing on is the first time through. And I'm suggesting that I don't see anything fundamentally different between the first run and the second run. Well, um, I, don't, I don't really either. I mean, I think that whatever state of the universe um, results in my making a choice if we rerun to exactly that same state of the universe, that's going to include my brain states and whatever led to the choice, I'm going to make the same choice every time. So, I mean, it's, it's the same for the first, it's the second, it's the third. But what this is missing is that, and, and what, um, when you were talking about how water doesn't have a choice, so what that was missing is 
of course, Blogger doesn't have a choice uh, um, as far as freezing or boiling, that kind of stuff like that. But the example of water is only used uh, as to how we talk about empirical possibilities in the world. What does it mean to understand the nature of something and the possibilities in the world? So I'm just going to ask you, is it possible to freeze water uh, in zero degrees Celsius? Uh, yes. Okay, that's a, that's the truth about water, isn't it? Yes. And and it, it can be any variety of water. It doesn't have to be the exact same water. It doesn't have to be uh, water at some selected uh, time in the universe and only that time and only under those conditions. It can be water under any variety of relevantly similar conditions that will cause it to freeze, right? Yes. And it's, so what we really want to know about... It's not about, a choice. Water, it's, it's just what will happen exactly. under that circumstance. Exactly. But it is a possibility. That's what no, we... It's not a possibility. It is what will happen under that circumstance. You, you said very eloquently a little bit ago that it doesn't make sense to talk about uh, two things, that, to talk about alting to do something that you can't do or alting to do something that you must do. And in this case, you're talking about a possibility as in, you know, water ought to freeze at a certain, no, it doesn't ought to, it's not a possibility. Yeah, no, it simply is the nature of the thing. That's right. Exactly. You were, you're trying to describe, if you were to, if you were to try and describe the nature of water, like say somebody, uh, a, a science teacher is describing the nature of water, how would he possibly do it without describing the varieties in ways water acts under different conditions. For instance, water, if you place it in zero degrees, uh, would freeze. Water, if you place it uh, under a certain amount of heat, will boil into vapor, that kind of thing. That's, it, it's, it's talking about water in different conditions or relevantly similar conditions where you actually are able to describe the nature of water. And if you're saying that that isn't, um, to say that it's possible to freeze water in zero degrees, are you saying there's no such thing as possibilities and that all such talk we have to abandon? And where are you going to go with that? Yeah, I, well, I think if you're saying it's possible for water to freeze at zero degrees, you're missing the nature of water. It's, it's not a possibility. It's an is. It's just an is of the universe. I think that I think that this will be more clear when you get into the nature of what choice is. Well, well that's just what I'm comfortable. Well, we're we're into that with the five conditions. Right. But so I, I just I just wanted I wanted to interject that because I wasn't entirely sure what Val's stance was on the, so the rewindable so the second time through determinism type thing. So, and, so and David, is it is it untrue? Is it untrue to say oh. that if you put hang, if, hang on hang on Val uh, Dale Dale had. Oh, sorry, sorry, I missed that. Yeah. I was just going to say, so we're, we're going to get into the second condition, the control condition, and we're going to kind of, that's where we're going to get into Val's notion about, well, what is it that makes someone have control that's sufficient for freedom? Uh, he can talk about natures or uh, certain states that are internal or something like that. I was going to be asking about that, but yeah. Yeah, I, th I think I'm, I'm looking forward to that section because I think, I think that's um, quite germane. And so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to throw it back 
uh, to you, Dale. Uh, I appreciate the clarification, Val. I'm not going to promise that I will not do this again at some other point. Um, but, f- you know, for the audience, in case anyone besides me got lost, um, I'm making up terms because I don't know the real ones. And so the, my made up term, which makes sense in my head, is second time determinism and first time determinism. And if you're a second time determinist, you got to be a first time determinist too. It's just determinist. Uh, and there's no, there's no fundamental difference between the two, the two runs in physics. So Dale obviously does believe that there is a difference um, between those runs. And I, I'm interested in the discussion as they talk about uh, how that initial run is made in the first place. So uh, we will take you back to your regularly scheduled program. Okay. All right. Awesome. And, and Val, obviously you're the guest. You, it's your view. So um, when I go into this section, you can you can uh, take some additional time to continue on with that water thing because the audience okay. wants your view. But let me try to wrap it in uh, to this issue of, okay, there's the second condition for freedom. What What is a choice? Well, uh, in order to have a free choice, the person, uh, the agent or whatever it is, has to have control, sufficient control. And, and both Libertarian free will people and compatibilists would agree on this, but once again, we differ. What does it mean to have control? So um, with most compatibilists, and I'm, I'm going to be asking Val his specific take as to how it works. What is it that differenti- differentiates an uncontrolled action from a controlled free free action, that sort of thing? So with libertarian free will, obviously, we as the agent, we, we have full control over our uh, actions and that sort of thing. We have that dual ability and that sort of thing to choose or not to choose. And by the way, it, it's it's just saying minimally we have a dual ability. Maybe you have five options or six or something like that or whatever. Um, but um, here's a helpful analogy that will differentiate the position. So here's David Johnson's hard determinist options. Let's picture a row of all black dominoes. You knock over the dominoes, boom, 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 causal chain, one thing after another, it's physically determined. Um, Great, no freedom, you know, all the dominoes are black, you'll get to the end of the sequence, all the dominoes will fall. That's David Johnson's hard determinist view. Uh, Val's view is, as a compatibilist in general, I shouldn't say Val's view because I don't know, but in general, compatibilists will say, well, no, the black thing, that isn't sufficient for freedom because the, none of those black dominoes had control in the causal chain at any point. So it has to be a special causal chain. And in order, in order to be compatible with freedom, some of those dominoes have to be painted green. And if, it, the, if you knock over that first black domino, it runs through and it knocks over the green ones and then gets to the final end black thing, the exact same sequence as David Johnson's, except that some of those dominoes are painted green, that's sufficient for freedom. So what would those green dominoes, what's the difference? Uh, Again, it's all physically determined, just like David, why is green special compared to black? And what they'll say is, well, those green dominoes run through the agent in a a special way. The causal chain includes within it uh, certain brain states. So, you know, it involves their natures, their beliefs, their desires. And if a causal chain, even if it's determined, runs through causal chain that includes those elements, that's sufficient for freedom. Uh, 
again, I'll, I'll turn it to Val in a second to explain if, if he follows with that or has something different or would tweak what I said there. But in, in a nutshell, that's the difference between David Johnson and Val's compatibilist version. Val's got, Val says in order to be determined and free, there's got to be some green dominoes in there. Now, me as a libertarian free will person, again, I have those, those probably those same green dominoes. Um, but in essence, uh, there's a domino that's me as the agent, and I can choose whether to fall or not. When that determined domino knocks over me, com comes to the domino that represents me, I can say, you know what, I'm not falling. Um, I don't have to fall over just because you hit me. Or pretend there's a branching path. There's, you know, th three or four different paths that the domino can choose to fall into. So the thing hits me, no matter where it hits me, I'm not determined to fall one direction or the other. I can choose I'm following this way. So that's the branching libertarian option. So I, I hope that helpful analogy explains the three different positions. Um, if, if not, Val can let me know. But, but yeah, Val, I want to turn it straight to you. You're the compatibilist. Um, have I used this domino analogy properly? What, how does control work? What does it mean for a causal chain to be controlled in a way that's sufficient for freedom in your view? Uh, okay, so yeah, I'd like to get to that. But uh, David, can I ask, is it possible to pause for a moment? Or should we keep going? It, uh, it is possible uh, to pause for a moment. Is it the red so, so Val, yeah, we left, we left off. I was just asking you about the control condition, and I just gave you a simple, you know, what? What, what are those green dominoes uh, under the compatibilist view? What are, what are the internal states or, or you know, uh, yeah, the internal states that are relevant for sufficient control for freedom in your view? Um, well, I would say um, that... The, okay, so for the dominoes example, <clears throat> where you talked about the green dominoes uh, in a compatibilist sense, um, and uh, singling those out as having uh, different properties, um, I would say generally what you described would be uh, pretty accurate to what uh, I would say as a compatibilist, um, and that um, so long as we can point to uh, agents in the chain, uh, who are who are making decisions? Who have um, who have sort of uh, beliefs, desires, uh, uh, the ability to um, reason about which actions are likely to achieve those desires, uh, and who uh, can think about their reasons for action? Um, all these type of things, and to understand their 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 powers for action, and also uh, and and predict what they can likely do or not, um, then, then that gives those uh, entities control. They are making the decisions. You don't, you don't get, there's a sort of a mistake, there's, a, there's this mistaken idea that comes out of this sort of um, domino view that um, where it kind of makes, it, it ends up, people use it to kind of make the, the agents sort of invisible in the process. Um, as if it, it, as if it, as if the first domino um, caused the green dominoes, the agential dominoes, caused those choices, and that's not really a 
uh, ultimately a very good, um, fruitful, explanatory concepts because um, the, the, uh, like in, in the case of we use the dominoes, um, it's almost like the beginning of the Big Bang you could uh, replace with the dominoes, but uh, stick with the dominoes. Um, the dom if you explain the decisions through the chain of causation that started with the first domino, you can say that pushing over the first domino was um, sufficient to cause um, my choices ultimately, because it ultimately did um, uh, end in the chain of causation that caused them, but it's not necessary. Uh, that domino wasn't necessary for causing my choices because you could have replaced that initial domino with a red domino or a white domino or a bigger domino, that kind of stuff like that. Uh, you, could you could have made an entirely different domino pattern leading up to, uh, to me and it's still, I still could have, um, uh, as long as the uh, pattern just before my choices are similar enough, I could have made the same sort of decisions. So um, it's, uh, it, it doesn't really explain much. So you really have to look at, um, um, it's, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like saying the necessity versus sufficiency of, of, uh, of freezing water. Um, if I put water in the freezer and it freezes, um, my placing the water in the freezer was um, sufficient to, uh, the, uh, to cause the water to freeze, but it wasn't necessary to cause the water to freeze. Somebody else could have placed it, it, it in there as well. Any number of scenarios could have the water being placed in the, the freezer and it would still freeze. So, um, so my putting in was sufficient, but not necessary. And where we get uh, we, we sometimes want to know what was sufficient to cause something, sometimes what was necessary to cause something, and sometimes knowing what, ne what is necessary um, gets us the kind of information we need to understand and predict the world. So um, it's, it, it tells us more about water to zero in closer to the event and understand that what was necessary was that, for instance, the water um, be uh, made to zero degrees Celsius that the water was made to cool to zero degrees Celsius. That was, that was the necessary part to cause water to freeze. And all sorts of different sufficient conditions can result in that, but it's that, that, that you're getting the information about the nature of water, really important information by identifying what's necessary to cause it to freeze. And therefore, you can set up all sorts of different sufficient conditions when you're camping, when you're at home, all that kind of stuff, when, when you want to make ice cubes. Um, to cause water to, to freeze. And it's the same thing in identifying uh, our choice making in the chain of causation. Um, it, 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 some people make this, this idea that, um, that if you don't, ex it, that if you haven't accounted for, explained all the causes that preceded your choice, well then it's really not up to you and you haven't really accounted for the choice but that's just not, as I say, how most of our explanations work. We actually parcel down, we, we, we segment, segment um, portions in causal chains in order to gain knowledge, usually predictive knowledge. Uh, so, um, so, for instance, if, if, um, if an airplane uh, line kept crashing, and then it was 
found out that it was a certain fuse that kept going bad, say the red fuse, um, nobody would think that when the the guy representing the air, uh, airport, um, so the airline, would get up and say, well, look, yeah, there's, you know, somebody said, uh, some technicians have said, yeah, the red fuse um, caused the crashes uh, from the navigation standpoint. Uh, but really, that really isn't the explanation for what caused the cabin. We really can't say that because really you can't explain um, you know, what caused somebody to make that fuse and then what caused that and all the state of the universe all the way back to that. What you really have to do is you have to give me a full account from the beginning of the Big Bang right up to the crash. And then we really explained what caused the crash. Like, that's obviously completely unworkable. No, we identify parts in the, the causal chain that will give us the information uh, to understand and predict things. And if you start at the, that the fuse was the proximate cause of the crash, that tells us, okay, if we change the fuse to a proper fuse, then the airplanes will fly properly. And it's the same with uh, identifying our decisions in the causal chain. You don't have to go back to the very beginning. You can just identify our deliberations um, as the essentially the proximate cause <clears throat> of our of our actions, and, and that's uh, uh, the agential cause, as it were. Awesome. Okay. So, so yeah, just two two quick things. So, fully agree with Val about uh, his point about sufficient versus necessary conditions with the initial thing. Uh, although I, I liked Aaron bringing that up as kind of a counter to a, the randomness objection or something like that. But um, yeah, uh, absolutely. You could have a red domino as the first one and boom, 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 the green ones will still fall and that sort of thing. I think that's totally irrelevant to what we're discussing here, though, in terms of the control condition. That ultimately do those green domino, whether it's a red, black, white, uh, blue domino that's the first one, fact of the matter is none of those green dominoes actually had control. And I like that it's interesting that you mentioned, well, this, this analogy is kind of manipulative because it loses the agent. I'm going to be, when we get to the fourth condition, yes. I'm going to be saying that's deliberate. You don't have agents. Um, but I, again, that's when we get to discussing the nature of causation. So yeah, it, it's an illusion. There is no agent. There is no control. But you can't, but you, but just, I mean, you basically just admitted that you haven't made an actual analogy to agency. So it's a, it's, it's an unfit analogy in that sense. I mean, if the, if the, if the dominoes are doing things that an agent uh, are, can't do things an agent can do, then no, I wouldn't say they're in control. They're just acting like dominoes. So you, you've left the agency out. So it's not a fit. You can't base your conclusion that, that, uh, uh, the determinism means that, uh, there's no agency there. So I'm saying yes, it's, it is a fit analogy. When you get past all the semantics, as you call it, when you were talking about the illusion and stuff, I, I do see your notion of control and saying, well, you can use the word agent, but there, there really is none. That you literally are a dominant. All those, those special states, and this was going to be my second question. I, I shouldn't be arguing, but... Um, it's, it's just arbitrary. You said, well, it, it involves beliefs. Oh, it involves the person's nature. All of those are all... That's not arbitrary. That's okay. generally what it means to be an agent. Okay, so so let me put it this way. Let me ask you the question. So so the states for you that are the green dominoes that have to be involved, that count as be sufficiently having agential control, mm -hmm. our beliefs, desires, and our, our nature, um, any any 
other green dominoes, anything else I'm missing there? Or? Well, again, for instance, physical capabilities to carry out our, oh. the actions we desire to take, et cetera. Okay, cool. Um, so why, why is it art? Why is, um, my, my question to you is why these sets of properties that seems almost arbitrary? What, what is it if ultimately my beliefs are caused by Alexander the Great's conquest, you know, it's, it's all caused in one kind of thing. I've had no, in what sense do I have real control over these states? It's, it's not a real control and that sort of thing. So it, it just seems arbitrary. Oh, well, beliefs, desires, nature, those will paint those green. Uh, no, they're, they're really black. They're really black dominoes. Uh, so you're doing exactly what I just argued was the mistake. Um, when you talk about, for instance, uh, what, what was Alexander's conquest or whatever, some state way back in the past um, um, being the cause of my decisions, um, I'm saying, uh, no, that actually doesn't make sense. It's, it's, a, it's a mistake that is similar to the, um, the, uh, the fallacy of composition, you know, where... where uh, so the fallacy of composition is, is something where you think that something that's uh, true of the part must be true of the whole. So, you know, if we have cherry pies, I've used this some example before, you have cherry pies and you say, well, do cherry pies exist? And then somebody says, well, hold on, look through the micron, uh, the mic, uh, the, the uh, micron uh, microscope or the uh, atomic microscope. And all we see actually down here at the atomic level are just little uh, atoms and, and electrons flying around. And um, there's no cherry pies down here. Uh, well, what's the expectation that cherry pies must be made of little cherry pies all the way down in order to, for cherry pies to exist? I mean, that's, that's pretty absurd. It's, you can just acknowledge that, that yeah, it's made of uh, 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 an arrangement of matter and energy, but matter and energy arranged in different ways. Um, uh, basically, uh, from... from uh, there are different entities arise with uh, different natures. So, you know, the tastiness of cherry pie, the sweetness, the redness, all that kind of stuff. And you'd have an agent, you know, also experiencing those who are also made up of atoms. But I mean, it's just a fallacy to say that if you, if you go looking, if you go looking down the ontological scale with an arrow pointed downwards, you say, oh, there's no cherry pies down here at the atomic scale, so cherry pies don't really exist. You're looking at it the wrong way. You got to point the arrow back up to see at the a level at which cherry pies exist. And the same thing is happening, I think, when uh, even other people are saying, like, "Well, look, uh, my my choices. Um, uh, yeah, I'm in the causal chain, and I'm doing some uh, causing of choices. But my choices were caused by this causal chain that stretches way, way back. And so, you know, I can say something like, you know, the Congress of Alexander." Um, uh, ended up possibly causing my, my choices. But what you've done, just like in going down to the level of cherry pies where there's no cherry pie, is you've chased, the, you've chased the train of causation back to where there is no me making choices. Um, in fact, there's, there's nobody that could be making the choices for me. The environment is not an entity, it's not an agent. It couldn't make the choice. History is not an entity that can make choices. The Big Bang is not an entity that can make choices. Um, so my choices are not, for instance, chosen for me. 
And the fact that they're caused to determine doesn't, it's just question better to say that simply because they're caused to determine, they therefore aren't real choices, that would be question begging. So it, if you want to identify what is actually making the choices, it's me in the causal chain that produces those choices. They are not, my, my choice to ride a bike is simply not going to happen without me going through the deliberations and making that choice. And they are, they are up to me. They're not going to happen. Even if there is a, a chain of causation leading to it, if you want to understand the choice, you've got to be looking at the point in the, in the causal chain to explain that decision. Awesome, thanks. And yeah, again, I, I, sorry, I, I shouldn't be debating with you because it, it is about your view and that sort of thing. But no, I, that's I, fine. To, I did want to kind of highlight there is that difference for, for compatibilists. Look, and I will back Val up. When I had Chris Date on my show, he said the same thing. He has slight differences as a Calvinist because it was kind of a theological type thing but he he said this domino analogy is totally unfit he preferred to use the characters of a novel and, and the author of a novel or something like that to keep this agent involved uh type thing again ultimately i don't think it's a mistake i just disagree with val i think it ultimately the this val's talking semantical fluff to a libertarian it, it really reduces down to dominoes it's it's that simple but uh, am I committing this fallacy? Are libertarians committing this fallacy for Val? So that's what the audience should be thinking about and assessing. So, so Dale, can I just say, so, so um, a lot of people try and uh, describe this the way you did as just semantics or even a semantical fluff, as, as you're saying. Yeah. But it's not, what it is is an argument uh, of consistency. Um, it's not simply making up um, concepts to save an idea of free will. It's looking at how we actually reason about the rest of the world and, um, and noted, noting what the implications are for how we reason about ourselves. So I make, uh, I'm making an argument for empirical consistency. Um, so, to, you know, if you can demonstrate that you can freeze water by putting it, by, by putting it in a freezer, I can demonstrate that I can lift my arm by lifting my arm. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, and 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 it does, and it's not, it, it's not, and cannot be um, dependent on being able to do so under precisely the same conditions in time. Even Christians uh, never actually can run that experiment um, for uh, for all the normal empirical entities that you're interacting with. You 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 actually do accept the reasoning that I am describing for how uh, we sort of abstract and do experiments. And it's inconsistent to reject it, to say that it is therefore um, incoherent when uh, applied to other empirical objects such as ourselves, what is possible for us to do. Let me, let me interject um, I, I here before one, you. Okay. Um, I, I do have one important, okay, yeah, yeah go, go ahead. But can we try to get it? finish in 10 minutes because I have one last question on the control condition that's really important yes um, I, I just uh, because there's this is an important point of disagreement um, that I think should be uh, highlighted and uh, another clarification moment uh, for me so Val um, I think I, I definitely understand um, 
what you're proposing here about, you know, there's no need to go back to the beginning of the Big Bang to figure out why the last domino failed. You know, we don't we don't need to know about the dominoes prior to that. Um, you know, not not all of them. We don't have to go back very far. But I am concerned uh, that we are not defining something very important, which is choice itself. What is a choice? What is a decision? What is a desire? What is um, a a goal, an evaluation? So um, this is not a question that, you know, most people are familiar with or, or used to hearing, but I'm, I'm thinking at a physical level, what is this thing that we call a choice? So if we're, if we're talking about a computer, I think we're hesitant to, I mean, we may use some anthropomorphic language and say, you know, it chose to do this instead of that. But in our minds, we don't assign agency to computers, even though they go through decision trees and come up with decisions. We don't think of them as agents in the same way as humans. Um, they, they do a thing that is physically traceable, and we categorize that in one way, but when we're talking about humans, it seems like we're talking about it in a different way, as, a, as if our choice is a fundamentally different kind of thing. And uh, so for a materialist like me, I would say that our choice is not a fundamentally different kind of thing than a thing that a computer does. It's the same kind of thing. It's exactly the same kind of thing. And this is, this is where I, you know, the Christians would obviously disagree they would say no we're not we're not just machines doing machine like things and so i need some clarification from you val do you think that we are machines doing machine like things or are we something different are we a different kind of agent doing some other agent kind of thing when we are making a choice uh well i think that we are a kind of machine doing machine-like things, um, but we have um, we can do things that um, computers can't do. Basically, that the freedom comes in degrees. You can just talk about any instance about what something is capable of, uh, what it's free to do. So uh, I have a uh, uh, I have as I said, I've got desires, uh, memory rationality uh i can i can i can reason about uh the things i hold to be true i can um think of my desires what would i like to do and i can uh reason about what's uh what most what action is most probable to achieve that desire and i have the physical capabilities to take that action um and so that's 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 of an agent uh taking action there um and uh um I have a degree of freedom about things that my computer in front of me doesn't like um, I can get up and walk out of this room. That's a type of freedom. That's a capability my computer doesn't have. Um, uh, and I could also 
uh, choose not to. Uh, so I have the option to walk out of the room or not. And I can base that on my uh, you know, surveying my desires and my beliefs and, uh, and what action is uh, most reasonable to take to fulfill uh, my strongest desire. Okay, but do you, do you acknowledge at least that those things that you talk about are just electrical impulses yeah. in the brain and nervous system? Yeah, and you can talk about computers having degrees of freedom too. I mean, some computers right. have more capabilities and more degrees of freedom than other. So uh, the fact that we have a more sophisticated neural net doesn't change the physicality of what's happening. Right. In, okay, so right. that's fine. Then I, then I understand uh, where you are and our ideas align uh, there. I, I know that Dale is going to get there. Dale, I... Uh, promise it would be less than 10 minutes. And so I will go back on mute. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Um, just so I know, uh, because we're only on condition two of five, are <laughs> you limited in terms of time? Like, uh, should I be rushing a bit more? Or how, how are we doing, Val? Like, obviously, me and David go along. It's, it's all on you. Like, uh, Oh, yeah. No, no, I can keep going. My voice is starting to, get, <clears throat> to go a little bit, but I'll, I'll let you know when I got to throw in the towel. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll try to interject less, too, but I can't promise because... You know, when something needs when something needs clarifying, I got to do it. <laughs> okay, um, so I'll try to rush a little bit more on my right. so last question. Go ahead. Control condition, Val. So, great, grand, and groovy. Uh, let's pretend everything you say is true. Oh, big problem for you compatibilists that secular philosophers refer to as causal deviances. Um, I, you're familiar with that, I, I take it, or? Well, if you can outline it, I may have heard of it. Okay, so it's it basically philosopher, libertarian free will philosophers will point to all those factors, all those causal things uh, being present uh, that you're talking about, but where somebody doesn't have freedom. So, it, you know, perhaps there's a causal chain of someone wants to be a spy, they're in a coffee shop, this is a famous example. And, you know, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You, you know, yeah, so they're, they're going to signal the Russians are coming by spilling their cup of coffee or something. So they, they have all the right beliefs, they have all the right mental states, nature, desires, whatever those green dominoes you want to say to have control. But in their, because they're nervous, actually they knock over the cup of coffee by accident. So this is called a causal deviance. All the factors that Val's saying are sufficient for con real control, for control of freedom are present but yet that wasn't a free choice he knocked that over by accident so yeah i just wanted to get your take on causal deviances there well yeah so i would say in uh knocking over something by accident by accident um it is uh it, it doesn't represent uh the person's desire um so it's not the um it's certainly possible, but it's not the type of uh, uh, that. It doesn't represent uh, what he desired to do. I'll, I'll just say what we can. Sorry to interrupt. In this example, no, he was desiring. He was intending to do it, but it's just he, before he could purpose. Oh, oh. yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I see. Okay, sorry. Um, so, uh, so right. So, in other words, he intended to uh, he intended to knock over the cup of coffee as a signal. But as it happens, he sort of knocked it over, um, um, not due to a direct deliberation, but by mistake. 
but it achieved the same thing that he desired. Is that basically it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my, I mean, my, my sort of just concern there is just asking questions like, um, was he capable of knocking over the copy or not? Um, did, uh, uh, you want to say it was that up to him? Um, I would say that, uh, it, it, just on his face, it doesn't seem like it would be, uh, a mistaken, uh, action would be up to him. It's not how he planned it. It's what he wanted to do, but not how he planned it. All right. Okay. Awesome. Um, all right, cool. So I'll, I'll move on then, just to make sure. So the third condition for freedom, what does it mean to make a free choice, is called the rationality condition. Uh, once again, um, well, actually, there is some disagreement here. So um, Val, I, I take it as a compatibilist, you would say, yep, there's definitely got to be a reason or rationale for every free choice and that sort of thing that people do. Libertarians, for the most part, agree with this. I, I do. But there are some examples where um, they'll say, well, there's non-rational choices or something like that, like twiddling your thumbs or something. Yeah. Do you think there's possibilities for that or those free actions or no? Well, uh, are they? Uh, yes, they're fr they're free. Uh, they're free. Um, well, basically, I think free will generally uh, is concerned with deliberative actions. Um, um, and then you can sort of expand it out a bit to ask uh, whether you're free to twiddle your thumbs or not. Um, uh, and if, you know, if you are, then that's a free action. You know, if you're twiddling your thumbs because you want to, and, uh, and also you could refrain from doing it, then that was a free action. But um, generally, uh, we, we're most concerned uh, with uh, deliberative actions, deliberate actions. Perfect. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, I do agree that the deliberative actions is usually where it's at and that sort of thing. Okay. Can I, I, I would mention, actually, no, you probably, if I, I would interject something about that subject um, just for a second, if you don't mind. It's one of the things that bothers me <clears throat> about uh, free will skeptics cases such as Sam Harris, who will uh, take inferences from things like meditation um, to, to, say that we are we are really not uh in control of our choices um because when you really look into how thoughts arise they are mysterious we we aren't in control of how our thoughts rise um and uh, and therefore we can't really account for why any particular thought arises. So he'll, he'll, he'll basically take this as a lesson from meditation, um, where you are going to a meditative state and, and just, you simply watch thoughts arise and you notice that they just seem to be popping out of nowhere. And then the inference from that is, oh, therefore I can't account for why those thoughts are rising. They just seem to be happening without my willing them. And I can't account for them. Therefore, I can't really, I have no account for why any thought arises. That just sort of it wipes out a, a, a certain sense of uh, agency and, uh, and understanding why I do what I do. But that's a mistake similar to what we were just talking about 
and that what we care about is deliberative um, action, um, deliberations about action. And um, I've used this analogy before, but the, the, the concept from the uh, of Sam Harris type skepticism in using meditation is like saying like, well, if you just learn, if you're driving and you just learn to let go of the wheel, you'll notice that nobody seems to be driving the car. Well, yeah, once you, once you, once you set up that condition, that's right. So it's the same with, uh, it's the same with um, uh, of, of just wiping your mind and not having any deliberations and just watching thoughts appear. Yeah, that's how they're going to happen. But that doesn't mean that we don't understand why we have certain thoughts or think what we do. Once we get into deliberation, then we do. So Sam Harris, I've heard him use this example like to a crowd, like to say, like, for example, everybody here, think of a restaurant. And then he'll say, well, you'll notice that that just popped into your mind. Um, and you really can't account for why that particular restaurant popped into your mind. Well, what he's doing is he's putting it into putting the audience into a non-deliberative scenario um, by just watching things pop in your mind. But if he had said it instead of like, um, I want you to think of your favorite Italian restaurant, well, then certain very specific ones will come to mind. And actually, you, it's very likely you completely can account for why that particular restaurant did pop to mind. It could be, you know, this restaurant, you, you, you learn to love a certain type of pizza in Italy and this a local restaurant seems to produce it most authentically and that kind of stuff like that. So you, you can account for your, um, your thoughts as once you get into deliberation. Um, so that's why I'm talking about uh, free will tends to be about deliberation and not just, you know, r random stuff I'm hearing. Awesome. Yep. I, I would, and I would fully agree. So that was one of my questions. So I'm going to let that be the answer. Although I will just say for the sake of the audience, it's interesting Nell's talking about deliberation. That's libertarian free will talk. Uh, that's that's not the mainstream position of compatibilism in general. They they won't speak, or or there's at least there's controversy as to kind of it's kind of we'll say that Val talking about deliberation is illusory again. So I, I, again, I don't want to go down that road, but just so the audience understands, there's controversy as to what we mean by deliberation and whether or not compatibilists actually engage in real deliberation. Uh, so I have yeah, there's controversy about every single thing we've yeah. said, isn't there? Yeah, oh yeah, for sure, yeah. All right, so, so I have two further questions. I'm going to ask them both at once, just to save time. And then this is where I'm going to give David Johnson what he's been asking for. I'm going to give him my definition of the role that reasons play in making a choice. Uh, so what does it mean to make a choice? I'm going to give that that definition, then we can move to the fourth criterion and that sort of thing. But, but Val... So two questions for you on the rationality condition, two more areas of controversy. So the first one is compatibilists don't believe in final causes. They only believe in efficient causes, the means by which an effect is produced in this cause and determin deterministic cause and effect thing. Whereas libertarian free wills, at least in general, again, Val might surprise me and not go with the mainstream, but in general, uh, compatibilists Compatibilists will deny that there are any such things as final causes, you know, the teleological goal and purpose as to why, you know, why is he cook, uh, why is the stove on with noodles cooking the pot? I wanted craft dinner. That, that's why the molecules are bubbling and stuff like that. So that would be a final cause. Do you admit that there are things as final causes? 
And number two is the issue, controversial issue of acrasia or weakness of the will. Compatibilists generally will deny that there is any such phenomenon. They, you have to go, well, and I, I've heard you do this with me in debates when we first started. No, there's at one time certain, whatever is the strongest desire or preference, that wins out. So there's always that rationale. Whereas libertarian free will people say, no, there are cases of a crazy, a weakness of the will, where my desire preferences are still maintain their hierarchy. Uh, like with smoking or something like that, I still, my strongest desire is not to smoke. I want to be safe. That's still set in stone, but I have this weakness of the will. And I, I've described that mechanism on my end as sort of an, a reorientation of the will. But again, this isn't about me. Um, so that, yeah, those are the two questions. Do you, are there such things as final causes? And what do you make of the phenomena of acrasia? Okay, so final causes. Um, uh, well, okay, I, when, I, when I hear final causes, I tend to start thinking of Thomism and that kind of stuff. Uh, but I, I'm, I think there's, I could say, uh, you know, I don't think there's a final cause in the sense of, you know, the God being, uh, having a teleological uh, direction for everything for us. But insofar as uh, you accept the idea that an agent, uh, that, that, you know, even in the case of God, uh, he, uh, a final cause is his ultimate end for uh, anything that he has set in motion or, or his purpose for anything. Well, I think we're agents and we can have those as well. Uh, I guess you could call those final causes too. So if I have uh, the, the, you know, if I want to just uh, uh, make somebody laugh, <laughs> I might, uh, might be my final cause uh, that they, that they laugh. But um, I, I don't see that this, uh, poses any problem for compatibilism. And as far as the weakness of will, um, I have no problem actually with the idea of the weakness of will, um, but it would be uh, in a relative sense. And, that, and I think it's, it's helpful to think of it in a relative sense. Um, there's no absolute weakness of will. Um, as you said, um, Generally, uh, generally, some will or some desire is going to win out, and we are always in deliberative actions acting on one or more desires. So we always have at least something strong enough motivating us for any um, deliberative action. But we can talk about weakness of the will in a relative sense uh, that um, we may also, we, it's, just a, it's just a reference to other strong desires we may have um, that we are finding ourselves um, not able to act on, that other desires are winning up over those desires, even though we do have uh, some uh, level, even though we have some reasons to um, have those other desires, you know, so just you know, kind of thing of, you know, eating a, eating a donut when you would uh, prefer to, you know, stay slim, that kind of stuff like that. You know, you've, you're, you're always going to be acting on a desire, but it does make sense to say that you have a, a weakness of the will in the relative sense that uh, your desire to eat the donut won over the other thing you also desire, which is to stay slimmer. So in a relative sense, I'm fine with the weakness of the will. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, 
Okay. Um, yeah, because I, I want to make sure David has enough time to to control the show and and probe both of us or do what he wants to do with the show. So I had up fine. Don't worry about me. Um, I would like I, to go back to something with you, David. Unless you want to bring something up. Uh, look, I'm 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 here to be a sounding board. Okay. <laughs> so. Uh, bring it, but uh, yeah, I'm yes. I'm fine with the way the show's going. I find the conversation um, fascinating. Um, oh, so I, yeah, sure. I, really and I appreciate Dale being hammered on very much by all your questions. So no, it's it's been great. And, yeah, and, and no, I'm I'm res- I'm being respectful too. I'm not trying to hopefully not coming across challenging. I, I want to address challenging issues for your yeah. Reason see how you respond and that sort of thing so yeah and i think you're doing a great job on that front there val um so so one thing i promised david johnson sorry i, th- I think uh, val had a oh. question for me uh just before you get there dale what 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 can i do for you val um okay actually dale do you want to uh to get to your promise i want to make sure you get into get in whatever you you had planned i was i was just going to read off uh my definition of how I, what I think a choice is. Cause they, sure, uh, great. So, okay. so I think that Alexander Proust gives the best definition that I gave. So uh, I'm just going to read his cause I think it, it's, I couldn't phrase it any better. So it's, it's basically look uh, at person X freely chooses a because X is making a free choice between a and B while being impressed by the reasons in S, a set S or something like that. So that's that rationality condition. We are impressed, not determined or influenced or something like that. Um, So he says, on my hypothesis further, had the agent chosen B in this uh, set of circumstances, the agent would still have been impressed by the reasons in S, but the choice of B would have been explained by X as freely choosing A, uh, between A and B, while impressed by the reasons in T. Um, where T is a set of reasons that favor B over A. Um, So last sentence, I promise. Moreover, in the actual world where A is chosen, the agent is also pressed by T. However, in the actual world, the agent does not act on the impressive reasons or exercise their will on the impressive reasons in T, but on the reasons in S. And this gets into my notion of acrasia and how, how we choose to orient our will. So I, I mentioned Dr. Tamar Shapiro, and I think I'm going to post up her book on free will. It's a fascinating read. I, I don't agree with everything she gives here. I've Christianized and modified her ideas or simplified it a bit, but I, I think it comes down to this orientation of the will. We, we maintain the, our preferences in terms of desires. There's not, there is no reordering and that sort of thing. Um, and, and reasons we, we can orient our wills towards by our own free choice to certain reasons and then we make the the free choice accordingly and that sort of thing but it's where i would diff tamar shapiro would more say um we're not free we're not freely choosing to reorient our wills she she thinks has this kind of weird idea where human beings are dualistic in their minds so they have their civilized brain and they have their animal brain the animal brain sees the world as simply teleologically infused you know a, a, a cat sees a couch it doesn't see the object itself it sees that scratchy thing um i don't know how to describe it properly or a sees a cake chocolatey to be eaten this they, they see like purely teleological you refuse so when someone commits a crazia they are retreating letting go of their burden of freedom and and retreating into this animal mind and and she says that's determined i would say no 
first of all, there's no animal mind, but they're reorienting their will and that's free will choice towards a set of impressing reasons, one or the other. And that helps to explain their choice uh, and, and addresses this randomness objection to a point. Obviously Val's gonna say, yeah, but it just kicks it down. What, what explains you uh, orienting your will one way or the other and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I just wanted to say that because David was asking for that all throughout the show. So I would use Alexander Proust's um, definition there. That was not okay. I, I think I have enough on my hands just trying to explain what I mean. So I'm not going to you know, challenge into that. Okay, yeah, sounds good. I'll, I'll leave it. Uh, all right, I, I, I will. Um, I, think, I think that's uh, a fine definition if all we care about is uh, intuition. So, yeah, it, it intuitionally, that's what we all mean by choice. But when I ask the question, I don't really mean in, intuitionally. Uh, I don't mean what it feels like we're doing. I mean what is physically actually happening. What is this thing it, the, the ontological nature of the thing that we call a choice. Uh, and so I don't, I don't think that really gets uh, at the bottom of that. And I, I, have some, I have some thoughts that I'd like to share later uh, on, this, on this subject, because I, I think it's going to come up in your conversation um let me let me just preface it with this I, I think sometimes the word choice in a conversation like this is misleading and maybe just an accident of language um i think that a better word might be motive um what motivates uh, a ball to roll downhill uh we can talk about that emotive force, we wouldn't say, why did the ball choose to roll downhill? Um, we, could, we could talk about the motivation that got the ball rolling downhill. And so when it comes to moral failures, um, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's helpful to say, well, you chose this one moral option as opposed to another. But it is fair to say that there was some motivation pushing you in one direction as opposed to another. And the challenge is knowing what those motivations are. And I would say that that is the black box, ultimately, that you don't know what those motivations are. You think you know what those motivations are you think you are going through all of the options. You think that you believe that option A is the right thing, but you do option B anyway. Well, the fact that you did option B means that there was some underlying motivation pushing you toward op uh, option B that you simply don't have access to. And you cannot, you are not in fact in a good position observationally 
to say that you chose option B as opposed to chose option A. All you can say is that there is a motivation that pushed you toward a thing that consciously you may you might say, that's not the way I would want to go. But there is some underlying motivation that pushed you there. And so I don't I don't think that you can call it a moral failure because you made the worst choice. You actually made the best quote unquote choice you could because you're you are following motivations that you could not resist. Uh and so I think I think we will get there, like I said, but um, that's kind of a preview of some of those thoughts. And, and I think part of the problem is just linguistically when we call everything a choice, um, that means something in the vernacular that I don't think it means in this discussion. All right, cool. Thank, thank you for, for that, David. Um, all right, cool. So I'm almost, believe it or not, I'm almost done and I can pass the reins back to David to pro Val or me, whatever he wants to do with what we have left of the show. Um, sorry, it's, it's taken way longer than an hour, um, but okay. So, so Val, um, one, the fourth condition for freedom is about the nature of causation. And if you remember when we addressed the control condition, you were saying, but you're, you're losing the agent with these dominoes. And I'm saying, yup, you're darn tootin' I am because the nature of causation. And this is a difference in the main. Um, so Val is supposedly a weirdo as a compatibilist because the, the mainstream views, um, if you're a compatibilist, you only believe in event, event causation. One event causes another and blah, blah, blah. And this is what a hard determinist like David Johnson also believes in and that sort of thing. Whereas it's libertarian free will advocates that say, like Chisholm, who say, no, there is agent causation. We are an unmoved mover, a prime mover within the causal chain. Uh, that Val called that a miracle and stuff. And yes, that's proof. We have supernatural proof every day when I make a free will decision on libertarianism and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and the dualism interaction, interactionism problem and stuff like that is proven right there from our experience on libertarianism, right? So, so this is a fundamental difference, uh, at least in the, the mainstream philosophers and in general, compatibilists have to deny agent causation. Now, Val, you're, you're not doing that, which is surprising. So do you want to maybe just sort of speak um, as to this, this issue? Because I, I've always heard it as, no, on a compatibilist view, if, if somebody raises their hand to vote or something like that, no, really, it, it, the libertarian just says, well, Jones rose his hand. Why? Because he made a free will decision to vote for Tom Jones or whoever it is. Um, but on the compatibilist view, there's only event, event causation. So you have to say, well, no, he, uh, blah, blah, blah happened, blah, blah, blah happened. This caused a brain state in his head, which has caused a certain belief, and this caused the desire to do this. So these states are the ones causing Jones to raise his hand. It's not about agent causation. I want to raise my hand. I'm a prime mover. Um, yeah, what, what do you make of this distinction between the two causations and how do you go for agent causation? That's not typical. So I would say that was a mistaken characterization. Um, it's conflating, um, it's conflating, it, it's sort of presuming the idea that the only concept of agent causation is the, uh, the one um, that's become common with theists where uh, it's a sort of a, uh, it's a buck stops here uh, form of agent causation 
which uh, sort of a physical determinist wouldn't believe in. Um, true, we don't, if that's agent, if that's the type of agent causation you're referring to, that's right, compatibilists don't believe in that, none that I know of. But that doesn't mean compatibilists don't believe that agents exist and that, that don't cause things. We do, it's just fully physical, uh, just like computers exist and cause things. And uh, uh, we are physical beings, but like I said, we've got desires, the capacity to rationalize uh, about how to achieve desires. We have physical ability to uh, carry out the actions to fulfill our desires. Uh, it's all physical and we are agents and those are uh, agential uh, causes. Um, it's my choice was caused by an agent. It's just not a magical version of agency. Uh, did I miss anything there? Did I answer all the questions? Uh, one last one, if that's okay. I sure. I hope I hope you're enjoying this. Or... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I, I was uh, just trying to. Okay, I can't leave. So I was wanting to. So so the last condition for freedom, the fifth and final one that differentiates libertarians and and uh, compatibilists, is the issue of kind of piggybacking off of this. So so Val is saying. Agent causation, that's, that's not just for libertarians, compatibilists can get it too. Great, well, now we have a challenge. Well, what does it mean for a person to be an agent? And there's a fundamental difference between libertarians and compatibilists, I think, that might surprise me and go the libertarian route uh, or something. But uh, again, persons on the compatibilist view in general are seen as just a series of events or a causal chain. This is the causal theory of action that philosophers of action lay out and stuff like that. And that it, it sounds to me for the most part, Val is, is going along with that. So the, here's um, the fundamental difference here is that compatibilists tend to see people, especially with Val, who's a physical determinist. He just said, people are physical things. So that means there are different, what is the nature of a thing? And there are three types of things in ontology. There are heaps, obviously persons are not heaps, right? That's a heap of sand or a heap of salt or something like that. It's very loose kind of unity. The second type of thing that has a unified type of thing is a property thing. And this applies to physical things and stuff like that, physical brains, our universe. And then the final thing is the substance, a substance. Now, as a physical thing, Val, and just like compatibilists, would have to say, well, people are really property things, just like your table, just like blah, blah, blah. Obviously, there's differences, but I mean, in essence, they're property things. They're not substances. Libertarian free will people go for substances. And uh, just to, I wanted to put up a table, um, but I, I don't know where I have it electronically. I can't. I have it in my book. I don't know. Uh, so I'll just read out some of them. So for example, a property thing requires two categories to classify it. So for example, a car is not a car. It's shaped metal uh, at, at its essence, whereas substances just require one category to classify them. You know, Fido is a dog. Jim is a human, whatever you want to say. Um, another difference here is that, well, how do property things derive their unity? Well, physical property things derive their unity from one, an external principle in the mind of a designer. And again, I'm not talking God here, but I'm just meaning any designer that artificially imposes that from the outside. Or two, contingently entering into a set of external relations from a whole. Whereas substances, they're different. They derive their unity from their own internal essence or 
nature, uh, which serves as a principle of unity from within the substance. Um, I've, I've got about four more. Should I read through these or just like summarize with one more? Like the, uh, here, here's one last one. So, okay, another difference between property things and substances. Property things, their holes have no new properties, not in parts, except, uh, oh, that's not the one I wanted to. Okay, so, uh, okay, yeah, here it is. Part, so parts are metaphysically prior to the whole with property things. The existence and nature of the whole depends on their parts and their and or their relations. With substances, no, it's the opposite. The whole is prior to its parts, so that the parts are what they are in virtue of their function within the whole. Uh, and that's what informs or employs them and that sort of thing. Um, like I said, there are three other distinctions I'm not going to get into it unless Val wants me to. But my question to you, Val, is that compatibilists seem to be saying that persons aren't, are, are property things. They're physical property things. Their brains, whatever it is, they're not actually substances in their own right. And true free will seems to presuppose that people are substances, at least in the literature that's been the fundamental debate. So yeah, what, what's your take on that issue? Um, I'm not sure. I, 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 I uh, might not have followed how that actually bears on uh, a, a problem for compatibilism. Um, I mean, I think uh, maybe this doesn't get directly to your question. I mean, I think, you know, the idea that things have natures is, seems to be a pretty necessary assumption. And, you know, uh, a nature is... Uh, you know, I guess what it is to sort of be an act in the world. And you could even say that uh, uh, to have a nature is to exist. And so we want to understand the, the nature of things in the world and the nature of ourselves. Um, that's what the sort of the project is um, for our actions in the world. But when it comes to uh, what you just described, the difference between the, the substance, et cetera, um, I think I just didn't follow how it, uh, bears either way. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I, it's, my brain is starting to try, but uh, that's no, where I am, I'm sorry. No worries, no, no, thank you. So as promised, that, that's it for all my questions. I, I managed to get it out uh, way longer than an hour, but yeah, David, um, I'll, I'll turn it to you to control the, take the reins of the show and finish off. With well, uh, look, obviously we're not going to uh, resolve the uh, all the questions around free will today. Um, so if we find that there's a big bucket of stuff that wasn't touched, um, maybe uh, sometime in the middle of next season, we can touch it again. But uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about agency, if, if that's okay. And I, I want to address this to both you, Dale, and uh, you, Val, if you, if you don't mind. Um, so when you when you say agency and you both you both agree on the term agency um are you thinking that it has to have a certain level of complexity before its agency so you would both say that humans have agency 
And I'm going to guess that neither one of you would say that a single cell organism has agency. So is there, is there some place along the taxonomical scale where agency exists, um, where, where it begins uh, or not? What is, what is the level of complexity that we're talking about? Uh, well, I think it, it sort of generally speaking, classically, uh, the, the idea of an agent is just a being with the capacity to act. Um, and, and, uh, and some have sort of applied this to sort of almost anything in the world, uh, entering into a relationship with anything else and sort of, uh, sort of being moved by it. So, uh, in that sense, uh, you know, uh, molecules are agents, uh, trees are agents, that kind of stuff in a sense. But the type of agents that I'm concerned with are um, agents that we associate with uh, personhood. Um, and so personal agents is what uh, I'm, I'm generally sort of talking about. Um, uh, there, I mean, there are degrees of freedom. Um, Non-agents can have degrees of freedom insofar as um, it's possible for them to do one thing or another in, uh, in relatively similar circumstances. Um, but uh, if we're just sort of talking about uh, human beings, um, I'm, we're talking about a personal agency, and uh, I would just repeat the whole thing about desires and reasons and actions and that kind of stuff. Okay, would you say that uh, apes have agency in the same way? Um, uh, so that gets into, that's almost like a, 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 the same type of question as morality. Do apes have morality? Um, it's, uh, since, it, since on this account it could come in degrees, um, you could, um, it may be the case that apes are agents um, so long as they seem to actually have desires and seems to have, seem to have ways of reasoning about how to achieve their desires, uh, seem to be able to take an action or refrain from actions. Um, insofar as they have those abilities, I would say that they are agents. It's just an empirical matter of whether they do, in fact, have those abilities. We can't always know if something has agency just as a practical matter, but that's, that's a practical matter. Dale, do you believe that all agents are morally culpable? Uh, no. Uh, so, so I agree fundamentally with Val. The, the agents, uh, the agency, and/or agents in question are um, ones that would be free agents, or in the case of morality, a moral agent. And these typically only refer to persons, uh, beings that have faculties sufficient for personhood. So, I, if you're not a person, which a chimp or an animal is not a person, in my uh, opinion then they're not free agents. Well, let me, let me just stop you there. What stops a chimp from being a person? It doesn't have a moral conscience. It doesn't have sufficient... That's circular. That's circular. If you're saying that uh, free agents are moral beings, you can't then define it with itself. What, what stops a chimp from being a person? You asked me about freedom, right? What stops it from being a free agent? And... Essentially, it doesn't have faculties sufficient for a libertarian freedom. That's that's why it's not. Animals don't. Can can a can a chimp choose to do something that other chimps would think is wrong? 
morally wrong? No. Um, it would be. Well, just wrong. I don't, I don't even want to clutter it with morally, just wrong, socially wrong. Um, you know, all, all, all chimps are in this, in this brood are supposed to go to bed. Uh, when the full moon is out, full moon is out. This chimp decides to stay up. Is, uh, is, is, is a chimp capable of making that decision or not? I don't, I don't think in the way that you're talking about it. So no. Okay. Wait, so let, Val, do you, okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to come, I'm going to come right back to you, but I'm trying to compare and contrast the, the differences. Uh, Val, do, do you, do you see that the same way that, that Dale sees it? Oh my gosh. That, it, that a chimp couldn't, could not make a, um, a, socially wrong decision oh a socially wrong decision oh okay yes. i thought you were gonna say i thought you were saying is it could a chimp make a free action and then well when it, Dale it is that it is a free it is a free action but it's a free action with uh with consequences that the chimp well knows the chimp knows if you do this thing this happens if you do that thing that happens and that thing may not be good for that other chimp but it's good for me. Can a chimp make that decision? I, I, I think a chimp can. Um, right. So, so you're, you're still, you're, so you're asking, so it sounds like you're, can a chimp make a moral choice? Not, sure. just, a free, not but, just a free choice, but a moral choice. Right. But I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word moral as much as possible because I think it muddies the water. It's a choice with, and you can say it has moral implications or not social implications. It's the implications of whether its society considers it a wrong action or a right action. Um, you know, can a chimp do that? And if a chimp can do that, then it's an agent like humans and subject to all of the same things uh, that you would say a human is subject to. If it can't do that, then I, I want to know the difference between that chimp and, okay. and humans. Okay, I think I can help you then. Okay, so once again on my account, it has to do with powers in the world, what you can and can't do, what you can do, what you can, frame, can refrain from doing, that kind of thing. So let's take, <clears throat> let's take a, a chimp action of uh, a, ch a chimp hitting another chimp. And maybe it's because, so, so chimp A hits chimp B. Why? Because chimp B stole chimp A's banana. Um, now, then we can ask the question, um, was that, is that a, first of all, is that a free action in the sense of, we can see that the chimp A has the ability, the power to hit the other chimp. Does it have the power to refrain from hitting that chimp under, the, under those type of conditions, similar conditions? Or is it always going to reflexively react by hitting the other chimp if that chimp steals his food. Well, that's something that in principle can be empirically investigated. So for instance, if you can, um, if you can, uh, if you could essentially sort of start to teach a, a chimp to not hit another chimp when it uh, takes the banana, um, then we can show that it will have the, and, and it can actually uh, refrain, then now it has the ability to refrain and it's not reflexive. Um, 
but it also would still have to have the ability to hit the chimp as well. Um, so, and which could be demonstrated as well. So if you can demonstrate both the chimp in relevantly similar situations can hit the other chimp when that chimp takes a banana and also can refrain from hitting the chimp uh, when the chimp uh, takes a banana, well then uh, that chimp is demonstrating a level of freedom and then uh, whether that chimp is making that choice based on some sort of social um, social concept that uh, you know it, X is wrong. That that brings that's hard to establish, I guess. And there might be some way of empirically investigating that, but it, I'm just not coming to my mind. But okay, once again, so it's, yeah. would it is it fair to say you think it's a free choice, but not a ethical choice? Um, it could be a free choice, but not an ethical choice, uh, depending on whether the chimp can <laughs> reason uh, ethically, whether the chimp... Okay, Dale, uh, I, I throw it back to you. Uh, thanks, Val. Okay, so you misrepresented me. I wish I had gotten to say what I was going to say first, because, uh, but Val raises a lot of things. So, so yes, I think that animals like chimps can make choices. They can't make free choices in the libertarian sense. Um, so I agree with Dr. Tamar Shapiro's take on this about animals. I think that she does a great job describing how they see the world teleologically infused, meaning en ends in and of itself. They don't see objects in themselves. They just see things for the per. They see, you know, purpose-based objects. I, I don't know how to describe it. Teleologically infused. I'll just use her words. So um, I would kind of be more like a compatibilist, I guess. No, I, I wouldn't even be a compatibilist. They're just de determined. They have certain desires and certain desires went out. They are instinctively um, following those desires, even when they have two conflicting desires and they have to make a choice. Do I scratch the couch or do I not want to get hit and get a treat or something like that? So they've got two competing things and instinct tells them to we're favoring this one. I don't want to get hit, so I'm, I'm doing this. But that's not a free choice. Um, they're kind of governed or determined to make that choice, and that's where the fundamental difference is. They're, they're not fulfilling these five conditions as a libertarian free will person. They don't have the ability to, a dual ability, for example, um, a dual ability in the sense of choosing to do or to refrain from doing. So if a cat's got two options to do, it's just got those two options. Human beings, if you present two options, actually they have four options. Cause they, you know, if you say, do you want an apple or an orange? A, a cat or a chimpanzee has an apple or an orange as their choice and instinct drives, determines which ones they choose in, in that moment. For human beings, we have four choices. I can choose the apple or I can refrain from choosing the apple. I can choose the orange and I can refrain from choosing the orange. Um, so, so that is what is sufficient in terms of ability for being a libertarian free choice. Animals can choose, they can't make a free choice. Well, that's interesting. I, um, I don't recognize that distinction at all. And it could just be um, my lack of knowledge in biology. But I don't understand where you're getting that distinction from, other than the fact that you, it's a theological necessity. And 
So you need that distinction to be there. Um, so when I observe human behavior, for instance, especially in uh, some of the, dare I say, less tame neighborhoods, uh, what I see are people acting instinctually. I see them acting like animals. Uh, extremely like animals. I don't, I don't see any higher reasoning in, in some places. It's, um, it's hunger, it's lust, it's sleep, it's um, anger, it's uh, retaliation. It's, you know, it, it's all of those things that you would see in a chimp community, not very much more refined than that i guess I, but you, I would, so where do you where do you see evidence of this refinement that makes it of a different kind so so yeah i would just say that there are of course examples uh, human beings just because we're capable of free action doesn't mean we always exercise our libertarian free will there's plenty of examples like i said you know i i uh, pointed out an example of people well the videos weren't posted of course but i i sent videos uh, of people acting like savage beasts, attacking an innocent Christian preacher just for preaching the gospel message, and they didn't like it. Um, so, so yeah, they, I think they were acting a lot instinctually, like barbaric animals in that moment. Um, and that's right. No, but that, just because I said that they're acting like savage beasts and they're, they're behaving instinctually, that doesn't mean that they're not human beings that have the essential faculties sufficient for free action if they chose to exercise those but they didn't in that moment so it's but i i don't i don't i'm having a hard time uh seeing this outside of you just claiming that it's happening so for instance if we're talking about chimps you know we can we can teach chimps sign language we can teach chimps social behavior uh, you know, make this choice instead of that choice in this situation. And what you would say is, well, that's just training. That's just us training behaviors. But when humans are trained from a very early age, I might add, um, we, see, we see the outcome of that as some kind of moral choice that's different from chimps. And I, I don't see any difference, zero difference between the way parents train their children to behave in society. And they do that training intensively for 18 years uh, minimum. Um, and then the children go off and they follow that, that, that training uh, and other environmental influences. But you would say that's moral freedom. That's, that's um, a free agency. But if you train a chimp the same way, and they have similar outcomes. You would say, "Well, that's just that's just them following training." Do you see the Do you see the the part that I'm missing here? I don't know how you make that leap okay. that there is some kind of difference. Okay, so I think it can be scientifically proven. Um, we've proven scientifically and empirically that human beings have, uh, sure. have the free want uh, phenomenon. I don't, to my, to the best of my knowledge, animals that have been tested do not have that. That's that dual. Yeah, I'm sorry, they don't have what? Go ahead, free, say that again. Free want. Uh, what do you, what do you mean by that? It's, it's what Benjamin Libet, the 
world famous neuroscientist proved existed empirically. Uh, okay, I don't know. I don't know Benjamin Levitt and I haven't read that. So what, what do you mean by free will? Remember the dual ability I was talking about that differentiates human being, uh, free libertarian free will agents, they can do or refrain from doing and I'm not sure that animals can do that. You're, uh, you're saying that animals can't refrain, that a, that a lion uh, can't refrain from not chasing a gazelle. No, it, it just does whatever is instinctually. It, it's uh, not making decisions based on Am I, how hungry am I? How much energy do I have? Is this injury that I have healed enough for, for this? You're saying it's not making decisions? Yeah, it's, it can't deliberate and it can't uh, be. So it's not, it's not deliberating any of those things? No, not, not in the truest sense of the word, right? It, it can't. I don't understand what you mean by the truest sense of the word. They're clearly deliberating those things because lions don't, in fact, run off and chase every gazelle that passes. Prove to uh, me empirically that lions have the free want phenomenon. Then we'll talk. Until then, you're just talking. Well, I don't, prove to me that there's a such thing as a free want phenomenon. Okay, I'll, I cite the paper on, on my website by Dr. Ben, the peer-reviewed science journal. Every, Val, am I making up Benjamin Libet? Am I just making stuff up? Did he do experiments? I, I, I think I, I think uh, Bell had to step away. Oh, okay. um, it's well, uh, well. I don't I don't know. Like you'll have to do a Google search. I mean, like I said, it, it, I'm not making this up. He, he, well, okay, it doesn't matter if you're making it up, but I I also don't see that someone else isn't making it up, um, and so I don't. I, I you are not explaining how this is different in animals versus humans except by just saying it is and that's not good enough if you're saying that there is a fundamental difference between an animal um training an animal and training a human uh and but that the outcome of the human is that we are free agents and the animal is not i don't i don't understand that uh why bother training the human at all uh, why not just our free agency take over? No, we, we have to train humans to be something other than their base animal instinct in the same way that we train pets, otherwise uh, uh, dogs, or otherwise they'd be wolves. Um, and so I don't, I don't understand this leap that you are making in that. And then the leap that says an animal has to do whatever its instincts tell them. I've had, I've had pets my entire life and uh, I'm 51. Uh, I've, I've got a 17 year old dog who's uh, somewhere around here at my feet. And I can tell you that the dog does not uh, come every time I call him, even though he knows that he would be rewarded. He does not uh, in fact, come get a treat every time I uh, drop something on the floor. Sometimes he uh, determines, yeah, you know what? I'm old. I don't want to do it. <laughs> uh, sometimes he, uh, sometimes he does it. He does not run after his squeaky toy. Every time I squeak it and throw it, sometimes it's like, yeah, you go get it. Other times it's yeah. Okay. I'll go get it. And if you, you think that you have that narrowed down to him, just following a preset of instincts. And I don't see any evidence of that in the real world. Uh, that, that is true. 
uh, but there there is. Uh, I've cited it. You, you just deny it. I, I don't know. Like okay. skeptic, skeptics can come on and just make stuff up, and you just buy it. But if okay, I'm, okay so nobody, nobody I, I cited it. Is is not actually an explanation for anything. You can also cite um, experts, uh, pro- you know, proving that there is a soul. Uh, that doesn't close the door uh, on the inquiry. I'm sorry, I cited it. Is is not uh, the end of that discussion. Otherwise, there's no need of having the discussion. You can just cite it. You've cited it. It's over. Um, libertarian free will is true. No. I, that's not quite how the inquiry works. And I'm giving you counter examples of a lot of years of animal observation, also of animal training. Like I'm a fairly competent um, trainer uh, at this point. Um, and, it, and it does not stack up with the words that you were saying. My lived experience with animals doesn't stack up with what you're saying. Do you have any experience uh with living with and training animals because i'm not just making this up either yeah you are because everything that you just said is perfectly in line with what i have been saying um and when i cite a a valid scientific falsification test that i'm Finally, I, I'm not giving philosophical arguments. I give a scientific. Okay, well, I I ask you for more color on that. So maybe maybe you know I don't want to get I don't want to get frustrated. But if if you've got something other than it's in a paper that I read that that you can explain uh, and and defend, that would be great. I'm all ears. I'm I'm sure the audience is all ears. If you can explain to me. Um, what you mean and and why uh, people like myself would say, yeah, but I've observed in the animal kingdom something different than what you're saying. I don't know. I, I guess I would just say they need to listen better to what I'm saying because uh, what they're describing okay. is just an animal having making a choice. I never denied that. Uh, okay, but you're but what you're denying is that that's different than a human making a choice. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, if animals can make a choice, humans can make a choice. And you said that animals have two options. They can pick the orange or the apple and humans have four options. They can uh, choose not to pick uh, either the orange or the apple. Um, and that just does not follow because when you offer an animal food, they very frequently choose the option to not eat the food. I, I can, I, my dog usually has two toys around. I can pick up both toys. Uh, I, can, I can give him the choice of one toy or the other toy. And he often chooses neither toy. Or sometimes he'll go for one toy. Or sometimes he'll try to go for both toys because he's really kind of stupid sometimes. Um, and <laughs> it's extremely... Providing a third option uh but but this is exactly the same option that you said that they couldn't do a moment ago you said that they their instinct requires them to either get either do a or b and they don't have the choice to not do a or b and i'm telling you as an observer of um you know my entire life and as everyone listening uh who has ever seen an animal can uh, can observe 
animals do uh, have the choice to not go with the banana or the orange or the apple, uh, or they could go for one, or they could go for two, or they could try to go for all three. They have all of the same choices in front of them that we do, and they make those choices by whatever decision tree they have in their head to do. What I was asking you is why you suppose that is fundamentally different for when a human does the same thing. And what you told me a minute ago, a little while ago, was that we have, you know, the extra two choices of not doing it. And I'm, and I don't think that you would, I, I think that you must recognize that that's not the case, that animals choose not to do things all the time. Yeah, okay, whatever. Well, do you, do you, do you acknowledge that animals choose to not do things no. in the same way that they choose to do things? Like, like I gave you the example of the treat. I, I could put it on video right now. That It wouldn't matter. Anyone who has a dog knows this. I could offer my dog a treat. My dog could see the treat. Uh, and my dog will have to choose whether he wants the treat or not. Do, do you agree that the dog could choose to... He can choose to refrain. He can choose not to eat, but he can't choose to refrain what will help me understand what that means i don't know what that means still he doesn't have a free want phenomenon in his brain okay uh, okay that's more that's more jargon i'm trying to stay away from that what does it mean you said that he could choose not to eat i understand that but he can't choose to refrain i don't understand i don't understand that um guess that's the same as choosing not to eat yeah, I just don't move on to Val or something like that. If you have another question, um, I feel like I've got something to talk about. Unless you want to go on. Okay, but Val, Val, were you free will? Um, it seems that to make sense, sort of the compatibilism has to be snuck in there and accepted, or it's very unexplained. So, so in other words, what um, what is it that determines? Uh, that God always chooses, uh, God always chooses good in every possible world. Uh, uh, we're always told that to talk about God's nature as uh, for why God uh, can and can't do and things. So it seems that God, therefore, would have a determinate nature. It may his 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 uh, his actions may not be caused by outside physical causes like ours, um, but something determines that God always chooses uh, good. And uh, if it's his nature, then God is in that way determined always to choose good. And then you've got to ask, well, then what does it mean to say God is free? Um, that's, perfectly, that's perfectly easy to do on a compatibilist case. But every time I asked that, the best I could gather of what I was getting back was just that, just because he can, <laughs> just because, just because, he could, it's always the case that he could do otherwise, choose to do evil, but he never does. And then when I say, but why, what, what, what tells me to expect that God will never choose good? And there's nothing there. There's just like, no, he just always does. It seems uh, to be uh, uh, nothing uh, discernible from sort of luck kind of thing. So that's, but that's, that's generally the, 
you know, one of the problems thrown at libertarian free will. But anyway, Dale might want to speak to that, but I actually agree. Dale's, Dale's not with us. Um, oh, he's Dale, not? Uh, no, no. Okay. So I, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't want to speak to it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah, it just seems sort of incoherent. So, so if we can get back to some things, uh, David, um, for the last bit of neurons I have left in my brain, I want to, um, I want to get back to uh, the previous conversation where I was talking about uh, sort of why we think we can do one thing over the other, and that it is uh, based essentially on a sort of a, uh, empirical evidence and, and uh, to a degree testing. And you were feeling that that uh, was an exaggeration that overfreighted uh, what we're actually doing during our decisions, because as you said, you know, lots of things we do, we just do. Uh, we don't, we're, we're not thinking like, oh, can I do this kind of stuff? I just do it. Um, and so actually I, I had already um, mentioned a caveat that accounts for that, that I'd like to elaborate on. I had said that, sure. I had said that we base these decisions on um, past evidence uh, and sort of forms of testing uh, experience, as it were. And I said, um, sometimes it depends on the situation. Sometimes it's implicit. Sometimes this thinking becomes explicit. So for instance, we take the idea of me uh, walking out the door and there's my bike. And I'd say, I, I want to decide, okay, do I want to ride my bike to work? Do I, do I want to walk? Um, um, now, what makes me think that I could do either of those things? Um, if I, I'm not going to, uh, in this case, my assumption, I'm just using an assumption that I can, for instance, walk. I don't go at the door thinking, like, I wonder if I can walk. No, I just go out and do it, right? I just walk. But the thing right. is, why? Uh, well, it's because I have experience of walking um, that is so um, built in that it's now an assumption that I can do it. You know, if, if you say meet me on the corner in five minutes, I don't think, I don't have to, it doesn't have to cross my mind. Well, can I make it there? Can I walk there? No, I just assume that I can do it. But there's a reason I assume it. It's, it's because it's built up on all the empirical experience I have of my powers in the world. It's now so... Um, uh, now, but if there were some other conditions introduced, which put that into question, like, for instance, what if I injured my leg, then that's when the deliberation uh, goes from the implicit, uh, based on implicit assumption, which was based on previous experience, to an explicit deliberation of, am I able to do this? And, and why? And so you think, okay, does my leg, does my leg hurt too much to ride my bike? Am I capable? You, you start deliberating, am I capable to ride my bike? In this condition, uh, I might decide that, yeah, you know what, I had a leg that's kind of like, I've injured my leg kind of like this before, and I was capable of my riding my bike, and yeah, I think I can ride my bike, and then I make a decision based on that. That's when uh, it's, it's still sort of, in all cases, it's still derived from previous experience to think, this is what I'm capable in the world. Sometimes it's got to be made explicit, we've got to stop and think about it. Other times it's just assumed, but assumed from all sorts of experience. Uh, 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 of previous evidence. So when you're making your decisions um, and you're thinking, uh, what do I want to do? There's a reason that you think you can do A or B. There's a reason you think those are open to you. And it's because it's based on your empirical experience of what powers you have in the world in conditions like the one you were looking at now. Okay, so let me try to meet you halfway. Um, I understand and agree on why we think we can do things. So that's, that's not the, um, 
that's not the place where I think hard determinists like myself lives. Um, we, we absolutely agree that experience plays a vital role in what we think we can do at any given moment. Uh, you know, I, I thought that I would be able to uh, conduct a good podcast on free will today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if that uh, has happened or not, but you know, I've had, uh, I've done podcasts before, um, you know, similar there, there's some, uh, lots of unknowns whenever you do a podcast, but you know, I, I, I like my chances. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, so I have reason to think I could do it. What I don't possible, have, right? that's right. But what I, what I don't, well, I have reason to think it's possible. Right. Okay. But what I don't have is knowledge that it's possible. Correct. I have, I have reason to think it's possible. Um, but I don't have knowledge that it is possible. So I, I, I want to just make that distinction um, yes, I have reason to think it's possible that I could have chosen any shirt in my shirt drawer. And I've got a shirt drawer, uh, for the record, that's full of shirts and they're almost all the same, <laughs> very slight variations. Cause when I find a shirt, I just buy a bunch of them. Uh, same thing, pair of socks, whatever, uh, sweat. So I just buy a bunch of them. I find it fits. I it's comfortable. I like it. I, I buy a bunch of them and I don't think about it. Troll full of them, uh, reach in, pick it out. So with me, it's it's largely just a random decision. But then you have to ask, well, but where did you put your hand in that drawer? You know, how far did you open the drawer? Where you know is really random. Well, no, it it really isn't. But as far as my decision making process goes, I could have chosen any shirt in the drawer. I have reason to think that. But at the moment that I reached in the drawer this morning, um. Maybe I was sitting on the edge of my bed. Uh, so where I was sitting determines how far of a reach the drawer was. Okay, so I, I could reach the drawer, but how far could I actually open the drawer? Well, I could open it sufficiently to get, you know, maybe some shirts on the, fir- the front, uh, you know, edge of the drawer, but not sufficiently to, to go deep into the drawer in the back of the drawer. Uh, so we can we we're starting to narrow down what could have happened at that moment. Uh, and, and also, we have to remember, these are not infinite moments. Moments are not infinite where you can go over all of this decision making stuff that we can talk about after the fact. It's a moment that is here in its past. So I don't actually have the option in that moment to, to reach to the back of my drawer, or maybe I'm overbalanced in my bed and I need to catch my balance and I've got my hand on the drawer. And I grab the first shirt that comes. There are lots of things that happen in that moment that make that shirt the shirt that I put on. Um, it's It feels random to me because I don't care what shirt I put on. I like all of the shirts in the drawer. Um, and I didn't think about what shirt I put on. Uh, I know that all of the shirts fit. Uh, they're all comfortable. I like them. I'd be happy with any of the shirts, but I didn't choose to put the shirt on that I have now. There are motivations that got this shirt onto my body. 
but it's it's just not right to call it a choice and to say I could have made a different one. What you would have to say is uh, examine all of the motivations that got, that uh, got your hand on that shirt, uh, and you know, is it physically possible in that moment for different motivations to uh, have inspired your matter in motion? And I would tend to say, no, I don't think there is. But if you're asking me, uh, you know, if I had, if it was just a matter of my conscious choice, yeah, I, I feel like I could have chosen something else. But it's never just a simple matter of our conscious choice. So I just, I think, I think the whole language is bad. And I think it, it muddles the issue. No, it, we don't choose things the way we talk about. Um, we simply can observe our motives for things. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, uh, Dale was talking about acrasia and that sort of thing. Um, I, I, th- so we haven't we haven't talked about this much, but in uh, you know if we um, extended this to a moral issue, I don't believe that humans ever act against their known best interests. Uh, I don't believe in acrasia. I don't believe in moral weakness. I don't believe in any of that. I believe that we actually do every time the thing that we think is best for us. And the fact of the matter is we're, we're animals with bad judgment uh, that, that choose on a set of criteria that's often opaque to us and is often bad. You know, why do you choose McDonald's um, over some healthier place? Why did you get the Big Mac instead of the salad? You know the salad's better for you. Why did you drink the shake? You know you're diabetic. You did not have a lapse of judgment or a lapse of moral fortitude. You actually, in your true motivations, did the thing that you thought would make you happiest and most fulfilled. That is what you did, and that is what you do every single time, just like an animal. Okay, so a lot there. I'm not going to take off on the last thing you said, but I want to go back to what you started off with, the, that you said that you have reasons to think it's possible you could carry off a decent podcast today, um, but you didn't have knowledge that you could. And I said, right, but I got, a, but, but this is exactly what has to be clarified. This is actually exactly the point of special pleading that I, keep getting back to the inconsistency um so um so let me let me actually let me actually back up slightly more by saying please don't get mad at me for this analogy but when when atheists like you and i listen to christians we really see what it's like when somebody is reasoning from an intuition so and, and the problem we have with that is that they will cling on to the truth that they can't let go of that intuition at the expense of coherency elsewhere. And they won't really follow out the implications of it and necessarily won't necessarily care about the implications of it. So it's a type of thing where, you know, the, the, the only person 
who survives a horrendous jet crash, right? Everybody else dies screaming. And he says, I pray to God, thank God, God saved me. That much I know. I mean, how else, how else could it? I know, I felt God's presence, stuff like that. He's working on a sort of an intuition of I, the only way I could have survived this is if God had looked out for me, look at everybody else dead. So, um, and then, but the, the atheist immediately sees the invocations of that. Oh, hold on. Other people were, were, were crying out for God too. We didn't help them. But if God is intervening all the time, then how does it make sense that he's just saving you? He's not saving you. It, it just, if you just carry the implications, it doesn't make sense. But the person will, but the Christian will often say, will often say, especially like the naive Christian, well, look, I can't really say why God lets those other people die out stuff, but I do know, this is the thing, I do know that he answered my prayer, right? So we see that kind of everything every time, and we realize the problem with that is they're, they're just not going to follow their implications outward. When I'm talking with free will to free will skeptics, to me, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people say things deny things when talking about free will that they would never deny anywhere else really and which if they just followed out the implication of what they're denying to deny free will you would see that you're being very inconsistent and actually incoherent you're literally like ruining knowledge that kind of stuff like when you start denying possibilities and 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 if you and if you think that you can say instead of saying it's possible for water to freeze that to merely say that water freezes at whatever, or that water will freeze if you do this, that's just not good enough to, to give us the type of knowledge we actually need to get through the world. Um, we actually have to talk about what is possible, or you're going to start getting incoherent pretty quickly. Um, but what I see is people saying, no, I know that if something is determined, it's not free and and uh, and is therefore not possible. And I know that's true. And 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 but I'm but and if it has implications that were kind of irrational elsewhere, well, the worst for that. So, but but we really want to be able to have a coherent whole. So anyway, so let's go back. So back to your idea that you had reasons to think that you could pull off a podcast, but you didn't have knowledge. But well, what could that actually mean? I mean, um, it. The, the knowledge you have, the reasons you have to think that you could pull off a podcast is the knowledge that you could pull off a podcast. And if you just say, well, oh, no, I don't know in an absolute way that I can pull off a podcast because maybe something will go wrong that I haven't thought of or randomly, all that kind of stuff. I don't know until it actually happens. Well, that's that's a that's the type of impossible demand on knowledge that we don't place anywhere else. You don't need to know in some absolute sense where nothing could go wrong you just have to have reasons to think it's likely that is that's essentially knowledge it's the same as like why should i think that water will freeze when i put it in the next thing well uh the reasons we have is that from all the empirical experience we have of what water is like and what is likely to happen we can't say actually for sure what happened but then if, if absolute certainty is necessary for knowledge, then we never have knowledge about anything. So the reasons you think you have, you could have done a podcast is essentially your knowledge that you are capable of doing podcasts, just as if you spoke French and you learned French and you lived in a French uh, city for a long time and had spoken French successfully. The next time if you're going to a job interview and they ask can you speak French, you're going to say, you're not going to say, well, I have reasons to think I 
speak, I can speak French, but I can't really say I have knowledge that I can speak French. No, you, you can speak French. We're not gods. You, you can speak French based on your Do you see what I'm saying? Well, yeah, but I, I mean, th that feels, that feels like a semantic argument that um, is the point of the free will conversation. So I, I agree with the semantic argument. It's conceptual. Uh, that, no, no, it's not. I got it. Everybody calls stuff like that a semantic argument. It's a conceptual argument. It's a con, it's 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 identifying the concepts, not just semantics, the concepts that we use in order to understand the world and applying them to our decisions. It's not just semantics. It's conceptual. Yeah. So I I have trouble with it when I try to think of it as anything other than semantic because you know I use the language the same way you use the language and mm -hmm. I think of I think in the terms that you are describing uh you know when I when I um get ready to, to cross the street and go to the store um I, I know that something bad could happen but I've crossed many streets many times. I've crossed this street a lot of times. I know the character of this street in the neighborhood and uh, so forth. And so I, I feel pretty good uh, about going across. Um, and, you know, as a, as a way of predicting behavior and future possibilities, I can say that, yes, I, I can cross that street. I'm I'm confident that I can cross that street safely. Um, I, I can say that I will cross that street. I can tell my wife I will go to the store and pick up a gallon of milk, uh, and I will have it home by the time uh, you get home from work. Um, I can I can say all of those things with the confidence of of knowing the situation around me, of knowing all of the variables that I can know. Um, now, will I actually uh, get up and go to the store and get a gallon of milk? Um, I can have the best of intentions to do it. Um, but it could be that, you know, some things happened that day that just kept me from being able to do it. Um, yeah. my, my intentions be damned. Um, I, I have no more control over all of the events that have to do with me crossing the street and going to get milk and bring it home, then, uh, then I have control over the laws of physics. I, it, the, the difference is there are just things about uh, my day-to-day -day decisions that I don't know. And so, sure, if I, if I don't get the milk, my wife would be wrong uh, if she came home and said, well, you lied. You, you said you would have milk here. Well, no, I, I meant to, but, but shit happened. <laughs> you know, um, shit happened is actually a really good excuse for not doing the thing that uh, you had intended to do. I couldn't predict that and I couldn't stop it. Um, and it would have been uh, criminally irresponsible if I had tried to, to do what I said I would do considering the things that happened. Uh, so, you know, I, can, I, I speak in the same language as you do when I, when I talk about future events and possibilities of things that I will do. But at the, in, at the end of the day, when we look back on what we actually did 
it's it's a little if we're looking at it from such a privileged position at that point it just seems a little um unfair and arrogant to say well we could have done we could have done that differently um oh, it only feels like that after the fact <laughs> it doesn't no, it actually feels, feel it like it feels that. it feels like that after the fact because it was true for this in the same sense it was true when you were thinking you could do it and when you chose to do it but the, the, okay so here's here's okay here's something to realize when we're talking about causal determinism which we're assuming for this does it make sense to say we could have done otherwise given some causal determinism we have to remember that what that entails is that in a sense the in a sense the future is like the past in the sense that it is um, determined in the sense that it is fixed in a way. So, so the arrow goes both ways. The, if you say, if you say I cross the street, but you know, really I couldn't have because they, I was, I was always determined to cross the street. Stop and think of before you're crossing the street and you're thinking I could cross the street. Um, Whatever decision you do, and that includes crossing the street, that that is determined as well. That is just as determined as the decision you just made. So all future things are just as determined. And if you're prepared to say that the next determined thing that you determine to do, if you're determined, if you're allowed to say to talk in possibilities at that point, then there is no. Uh, there's no incoherency to talk about your previous determined um, what you could have done. So, yeah. So you, you just, you know, if you can cross the street, why do you think you can cross the street? You're going to appeal to previous experience of similar situations. This is similar enough that it's fair to um, predict you can likely cross the street. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to make it, but you have reasons based on what is possible before you make that. And it doesn't matter that that's determined because that's the only way you can even rationalize about getting across the street. So once you cross the street, I agree say, with that. Yeah. But once you I cross the street, it's, it's just as coherent to say you could have crossed the street or could have refrained from crossing the street. It's the same thing. Okay. Well, uh, I hear that. And I, I, still have trouble hearing that as anything other than a semantic argument. I mean, I can say yes to that, but at the end of the day, I think we both agree uh, that whatever the arrow of time uh, pointed to, that's what was going to happen. So what, what, what you thought was going to happen or what you thought could have happened is at the end of the day, irrelevant. Um, no, because, no, that's, that's exactly the point. What you, so let me, what you let me, think let me just, can happen is going to form your action. Okay, so let me let me just ask you um, this question about time. I was hoping that the conversation would go to time at some point, but I, I realized that that was never going to happen. Um, are you a B theorist of time um, or an A theorist of time? Oh, you know what? Yeah, I, I remember this question, and I forget my answer because I'm not. I, I don't uh, spend a lot of time. All right, then let me let me just it. ask it uh, uh, in a in a different way. Do you believe that the future is uh, in fact already set that it that it is in existence in in some way, or do you think that the future is being written as it were with 
with each passing moment? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I think that to really have a good answer to that, I have to be a lot more uh, confident about in, in that area. I, like, I feel like I would just want to defer that to experts and not, not to me. My my point is that I think that uh, whatever it is, uh, the compatibilism would be compatible with it. Well, that's fine. So, but, so long and, as and, like so long as things seem to be as they are, uh, the compatibilism is is consonant with how we. It seems like we're going to have to talk whatever theory of time we're talking about. Sure. So, look, I'm not an expert either. I mean, I mean I've read some books and I understand a good third of them. <laughs> so, um, it's it's pretty heavy stuff. But uh, I'm a I'm a B theorist. Um, with with the understanding of the universe that I have, I I do believe that time, uh, in fact, is a a set thing. It is it is something that in in the same way that the past exists presently, so does the future. The, the right. next so moment that's, is uh, is written, uh, and so how did how did our our sense our intuition that we are moving through time is is useful it's incorrect um i I think it's it's probably imprecise but um we are a little like a character on a videotape that is conscious of ourselves um and we think that we can direct the way the tape goes, but we cannot. We're at the end of the day, we're still on the tape. <laughs> um, we are, we're on the tape, and so every original thought that comes into our head uh, was written down a thousand years ago. Um, every new thing we decide to do in the next moment is is already in a book. Uh, you know, it's it's already written on the cosmos. So we feel like we are doing the thing in making our history. And all we're actually doing is we're following. We're not, we're not on an open road. We're on rails. If, if, uh, if, that, if that analogy makes sense to you. Yeah, no, no. I um, I, yeah. yeah. And so uh, if I am right about that, I know that's a big if. If I am correct about that and that we are on rails and not on an uh, open road, road uh and we are simply on the train of of time uh and the the route is already um is already there uh then it's in actuality illusory that we are doing something to direct our course through time but um it doesn't help to say that because it feels enough to us like we are choosing to go to the next moment of our own volition that I don't mind, I don't mind saying that and talking like that. It, that honestly, I think I would go a little mad if I didn't think that way and talk that way. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, this, this long and rambling speech I'm making right now is the long and rambling speech that I have always made. I've already made it. 
uh, roll back the tape. I will make it again. Roll back the tape. I will make it again. Um, and so my intuition that I just created future by saying those things is, is useful for my sanity, but I don't think it's particularly useful for a discussion of what's actually happening in the universe. Uh, okay. So yeah, like one reason I don't spend too much time thinking or worrying about a, a, a and B time is that uh, I'm very aware that literally everything that I would have said, uh, everything from just the idea that we're moving through time to the whole notion of causation to what science does to whether counterfactuals are even true or not. It's all, uh, I'm all under debate, but how I get around that is that, and so going back to the time issue, if you, you said that, that we're, you know, we're not really moving through time. It seems like it kind of stuff is my point would be that however, in whatever way you have to rejig to talk about time correctly, it's going to pertain to everything that we're doing, including um, understanding the nature of fire and water, building rockets, uh, predicting our choices, all that kind of stuff. That All that stuff will remain. And any way that you have to rejig to talk about that stuff, because compatibilism is just another empirical um, claim, you're just going to rejig compatibilism to speak coherently too with how things really are. So it's not really threatened by it. So as long as, you know, our ability to build rockets isn't threatened by some um, A or B time, whatever it ends up being, neither is any sort of compatibilist account for what it means to uh, sort of be able to do otherwise. I agree with um, that. You know, uh, you um, yeah, no, I, I agree with it. The, the, I can agree with you easily uh, because I think of it largely as semantics. You cannot agree with me because you think that there's, that there's something deeper than semantics going on. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if you if you peel it back, and I, I've been trying to pay attention, if I if I have heard the things that you said correctly, you believe uh, that what's actually going on um, is what I believe uh, that um, that we are, if I can speak uh, crudely. Uh, matter in motion, uh, affected by other matter in motion. And we have, you know, their, their electrical impulses and uh, motivations and nerves that uh, push us in one direction as opposed to another. But at the end of the day, we're, we're all materially causal uh, creatures. And you uh, acknowledge that um, the first the first run through is no different than the second run through and the second run through wouldn't change. So all of these things are things that I would cash out as determinism and, and you might cash out as compatibilism and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm happy with that because we're not saying the, we're using different language to get to a, a location, but I don't think the location we're getting to is at a different place. The different place, the truly different place, and I, I don't want this to get lost, and I hate that we did lose our Christian, the true different place is not the place where you and I are. It's the place where uh, we and the Christian is. It's the place that says 
there is something fundamentally different about you as a human that allows you to pull yourself out of a causal chain to do something else uh, that uh, that would go against uh, the motive forces that brought you to this point. I, I don't think we know. I don't think we are at the same place. We agree on some things, but we're not at the same place conceptually because you when you just went to the all we are is matter in motion kind of thing, like everything else, um, you seem to be making, to my mind, the same mistake that um, theists make when they do the all it's all matter in motion, therefore it doesn't matter what we do or why, oh, there's no real difference between a human and a rock, uh, that kind of thing. And, and you seem to be doing it to sort of ignore the significance of agency of us relative relative to other no, things. No, I'm not. I'm not ignoring any of that. In fact, okay. I I think this is. I think so. Once again, I, I please don't please don't take offense to this, but I think that um, there is a little bit of an emotional pushback um, against this determinist deterministic view that that causes a harsh reaction. And if if you could, I, I'd like to address some of that emotional pushback because I understand why determinism sounds awful. It sounds awful to me. And I understand the emotional pushback because I have it. Uh, and one, the thing that, that we have to try to do in a conversation of free will is soothe people's minds that, no, we, we really are culpable for the things that we do and that there's really uh, it really does make sense to say um we should do this and not that um and and if you if you read determinism the wrong way you're going to come to a place where it it feels like well then nothing matters because uh, nothing's my fault Anyway, and that is the collapse of civilization. Uh, if you if if you end up there, so uh, allow me to make a, a case for determinism it, that tries to to separate this emotional uh, issue uh, that people have. Because I, really, I do think that you and I are in the same place, but you are you are pushing back exactly where Christians push back, <laughs> which is. Um, to suggest that, oh, well, you mean it, none of it makes sense? Well, so first of all, no, none of it does make sense. Um, and so cosmically speaking, uh, what we do here is about as significant as a star blowing up. Uh, so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stake out some ground. That's emotionally uncomfortable. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> th- those, of, those of you who feel like you know, your actions have some kind of cosmic eternal consequences grow the fuck up. Um, they, they do not. <laughs> so um, that's a, that's a, that's a hard existential kind of thing to bear, but it does, but it's not quite as bad as it sounds. So just because uh, I may be uh, motivated uh, I don't. I don't like using choice language here. Uh, I'll slip into it every now and then. But just because I have certain motivations, um, social pressures, uh, uh, a physical makeup, uh, my neurons fire in a certain way, uh, my nervous system fires in a certain way, just because uh, 
all of these things push me to order the milkshake when when I have reasons to not order the milkshake. It doesn't mean that I, from, from my perspective, it doesn't mean that I have to order the milkshake. Now, in reality, I might have to order the milkshake. But I believe that when I go to the counter, I can choose not to order the milkshake. And I believe that I am culpable for ordering the milkshake or not from a social perspective. So um, if you're talking about, well, should society pay Medicare, uh, you know, because here I, here I was a diabetic who ordered a milkshake and look, you're sick and now you're asking me to pay for it. Um, was I responsible for my choice in ordering that milkshake? From a, a very macro social level, yes, I am still responsible for ordering the milkshake. Cosmically speaking, I am not responsible <laughs> for ordering the milkshake. But we don't live life at a cosmic level. We live life at, the, at a very macroscopic level. Uh, and basically, the truth is what we think the truth is. And I think the truth is I can not order that milkshake. And uh, whatever, whatever time has uh, written for me, whether I order or not, I am in the moment and I am making that uh, decision based on my motivations, right? So I don't, I'm not freeing myself from culpability for my health. That said, um, there is a balance to be struck. Because I might have uh, something like obsessive compulsive disorder. That is not my fault. Why do I have the obsessive compulsive disorder? Uh, I didn't give myself obsessive compulsive disorder. And maybe on a broader, different level, I, I had to order that milkshake. Okay, so we are both culpable and not culpable. And it depends on the level that you're looking at. Um, so I, I don't I, I find it challenging, but not not terribly inconsistent. It's just the reality of every moment of our human lives. Um, so you, Val, are a smart guy. You can't help it. You can't not be smart. Um Things that you say are going to be, uh, on average, more intelligent than things other people say, because you simply got more gray matter uh, and a higher IQ uh, and, and better usage of, of those facilities. Uh, can you say something dumb? Sure. And are you responsible for the things that you say? Sure. At one level, you are. At another level, you're not, because you're, you're a pack of gray, uh, gray matter. Uh, and a pack of motivations that can't help but be what you are. Uh, so I, I think that we can have determinism and social culpability uh, at, at the social level. But if we understand it, determinism properly, I think that we would be less, for instance, less inclined 
to pull the trigger on things like the death penalty uh, and things like, um, you know, locking people up in cages forever because of compulsions that they literally cannot control. Uh, and, and it's the Christian mindset that says, no, you can literally control everything. Um, and I think that that's part of the determinist pushback because we know that that's not true. You cannot literally control everything. And there's some things that we're aware of that we can't control. But it, it also goes too far to say, but we can't, uh, at least at the social level of uh, humans interacting with other humans, we can't control anything. Does any of that make sense at all? It yeah, made sense I, in my head before I started saying it. Yeah, no, mostly we're on the same page about that. <clears throat> um, so that so the idea is that um, I think most compatibilists I know of would <clears throat> say that that no, we don't have <clears throat> a an ultimate moral responsibility of the type libertarian free will is trying to establish. Um, a sort of a buck stops here. Kazusui, uh, it, it's just nothing else causing it but us, and therefore we uh, are uh, most deserving of all possible um, moral blame. I don't think that can be established, and it's just not even, it's rejected also as basically in, incoherent to even non-libertarianism. It's what they want, but it just can't be had, even on their accounts. Um, it's like I had their, their cake and eat it to attempt, and in my mind. <clears throat> but there are there's a, uh, a relevant level of moral culpability that basically you kind of traced out for the most part, um, a social level of moral culpability. And the fact that, that we are capable of being moral agents uh, where we can represent, uh, where we can understand the reasons we have for doing things and see which reasons are better and whether we have more reason to do uh, one thing over another and arrive at what we ought to do and what we not ought to do. So we're, moral agents and uh, we are responsive to um, reasons insofar as we're responsive to reasons too, we're moral agents. And so we do have culpability for not doing the right thing um, in that sense. But it's also good to understand, um, uh, it's also good to understand the ways in which we're sort of uh, not fully um, magically responsible for uh, everything uh, we are. And uh, and obviously there's there's uh, there's all sorts of ways and we aren't free. So like if we have a, an addiction, um, you know, it's just that's just an empirical problem uh, for freedom in the compatibilist sense. If I am addicted to cigarettes and I think okay I can choose not to smoke a cigarette today after my meal, and I want to uh, go that way, but I end up choosing it, then you know I was wrong. I was wrong about the idea that I had the freedom to refrain from doing it. But if I had the freedom, I could have demonstrated freedom by refraining from smoking a cigarette. So addictions are, uh, and this, I think we all feel intuitively, addictions are a loss of freedom to a certain degree. The same would be yes. uh, if we had a brain tumor. Um, we, you may think if you had a brain tumor that causes you to always order salmon uh, rather than a steak, then you've got to be, um, you've got to, to know what your actual capabilities are. You can be wrong about them. If you think you're free uh, to order uh, steak instead of salmon, but the brain tumor always causes you to order salmon, then you're not actually free with that respect. So yeah, there's all sorts of things that constrain our freedom. So we we agree there. It, let me try to tie this together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to 
circle back around to something that uh, neither you nor Dale had the stomach for, but it's important <laughs> and it's, it helps, it helps deal with this kind of existential ick factor of, uh, of determinism. And, you know, how can you, how can you be socially culpable? Um, I was, I was talking earlier about training animals uh, and every every time something like this comes up, whether it's moral moral uh, argument or uh, free will, I I'm always talking about animals. I'm an animal guy, um, so people should know that that's coming <laughs> if I'm in a conversation like this because it comes every time. Uh, but it's here's why it's important. Um, when it's an animal, we understand the mechanism of training an animal. We we understand some of the uh, abilities and limitations of animals. We we also know how to train animals, um, a little bit like training AI, uh, uh, I, I suppose. But um, it's it's a it's a very complicated thing. So that the end result is extremely elaborate. Uh, it, it's so elaborate it looks like something that possibly it's not. So um, if you, if you like watching um, television and you see, you know, you have a show where there's a, a, a famous dog, you know, or cat or whatnot. First of all, it's not a dog. It's lots of dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Lassie was lots of dogs. Um, and they are executing lots of trained behaviors over intensive training periods over a long period of time so that you can get the kind of end result that looks like a thing that it is not necessarily. <laughs> um, so that's training. We understand that. What happens when an animal doesn't take to its training or loses its training or you know, goes crazy and bites somebody. Well, we say, we don't say that the animal is evil, but, but we'll put it down, right? We'll, we, we will, we will give it the happy juice one last time uh, or the bullet, uh, whichever is cheaper. And, um, and that animal's gone because it didn't take to its training. And we don't feel like we have a lot of moral, um, responsibility toward an animal that that forgets his training and bites someone goes rabbit. We'll, we just we shoot it. Okay. Humans, I contend, are trained animals. Now, we have broader capacity, like computer. Um, you know, you can, you can train uh, AI and supercomputer better than you can AI in a calculator. Um, we, we have a higher capacity, and so we have a, a higher capacity for training. Uh, and so we do that. And we're, we're, as humans, we're very good at training other humans. Furthermore, we train humans for a long time. We train dogs for a short time. We train humans for a long, long time. And so at the end of that long time, humans are behaving in uh, ways that we call social norms. Why are they behaving in those social norms? Is it because um, is it because they're making moral conscious choices to do 
uh, A instead of B? Is it because they are choosing not to rape today as opposed to rape today? Uh, and that that's somehow different from a dog? No, we are following our long years of social training and we are not released into the world, uh, technically, legally, until we have demonstrated um, that we have reached uh, a, a certain peak of that social training. What happens when a human slips their training, when that training doesn't take or the training wasn't very good? We don't tend to put humans down, although capital punishment is a, a kind of a way to do that. But we, we say other things. We have a whole other language. We talk about moral culpability. Uh, we talk about justice. You know, you did this. And so this other thing has to happen to you. You chose to do this. And so we have a right to retaliate in, in this way kind of thing. I, I honestly think that we are making a mistake uh, when, we, when we talk that way. It is true that when a human goes rabid, we have to hold them accountable in that we have to protect society from rabid humans in the same way we have to protect them from rabid dogs. We can't let a human who has no social training run around in the world unleashed. That is chaos. And so we have very similar kind of understandings that rabid humans and rabid animals have to be contained in some way. The difference is we think that we understand that with animals, it's just training and whether they take to it or not. And with humans, we think there's something supernatural or metaphysical going on besides the training. So I, I think I think this understanding is part of what helps me get past some of the existential ick of determinism. Um, we are culpable, socially culpable, in that we all have, you know, 18 or so years of training so that we can know how to behave in society. And if for whatever reason, because of our biology, our environment, we're not able to do that, there are remedies for that. And we don't have to run around thinking of each other as evil because we, because we couldn't take to the training or that someone else is good because they could. Well, uh, okay. Well, a bunch of that makes sense to me. Um, good. I'm as, glad. To, I'm glad something did. As, <laughs> as far as the uh, sort of moral responsibility, it gets into the sort of the uh, I guess the the debate of whether uh, um, you know does having morality or does the existence of morality entail necessarily the existence of moral responsibility? Um, you know, there's some like hard and compatibilists and that kind of stuff to say, yeah, oh, there's, there's, uh, we have reasons to do X or Y, moral reasons, but, uh, it, but it doesn't lead necessarily to moral responsibility. That is blameworthiness. Um, but, um, but that's, my neurons are too fried to go too far. Into yeah, that. no, um, that's, that's not, that's not doable for me either, but um, <laughs> look, let's, let's put a pin in it right there. And uh, it's been, a delight uh, talking to you and, and exercising my own neurons, uh, at least to the extent 
Can I can uh, I put a pin I on, on? Would you mind if I just made a last statement then? Absolutely. Uh, so if, if I don't have a closing argument because I wasn't uh, really going to be in the argument anyway. And so um, since this is uh, actually an off-season show, I also don't have a um, teaser for what's next because what's next is I'm going to go to a mall. <laughs> enjoy okay. life so uh i will let you uh i will let you close us out here oh geez okay i, I was just actually going to revisit that um what you just spoke about you talked about taking the ick factor out of determinism and that's actually a lot of what i was trying to do um because a huge ick factor um as it were is this idea that we're going through life seeming to make choices, believing we have options, thinking I really could do A or B, and then all of a sudden determinism comes in and the ick factor is, oh no, I was wrong. I, it was an illusion. Um, it, it's, all, it's all a masquerade. I really couldn't have done, I really couldn't do A or B. I really couldn't have done otherwise, that kind of stuff like that. That's a huge ick factor to just our, our daily life. Um, and what I'm saying is that no, I'm trying to take away the factor to say that no, when you were deciding on actions, and you thought you could do A or B, the reason it felt like you could do A or B is because you were right that you could do A or B. The, 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 the actual conceptual scheme you're using for figuring out what to do, and whether you can do it, justifies thinking that you could do A or B in a way that is not at all threatened by uh, determinism because it's the same reasoning that we understand everything else that's possible in the world and the nature of everything else. So that feeling that you could choose A or B, it's there because you're actually thinking in a way that is yielding truths about what you can and can't do. You're only making a mistake when you're jumping out of those normal everyday decisions and trying to philosophize, which most of us aren't very well equipped to, about, oh, how does determinism fit in with this? And then you, then you make mistakes like, oh my gosh, I was wrong. No, you weren't wrong. If you go back and you, you actually look at what is going on, you're not making metaphysical judgments when you're making decisions, you're making standard and empirical judgments of probabilities that work to send rockets to the moon and, and work to freeze your water in, in the fridge, all that kind of stuff. You, you, you generally have the powers that you think you have. So that, that's my general point. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I understand this, the spirit of it and I don't, I don't disagree. And I, <laughs> I still think that we are mostly standing in the same um, field and I know it and you don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> could be, could be. So, I'm not on mission today. So that uh that said, it's been uh it's been it's been good. Um yeah, we'll uh we'll we'll cut it off there. I look forward to uh comments uh on this one because there there's so much that I, I when I go back and listen to, I, I want to revisit, I want to re-listen. Um to uh, both what you and uh, Dale were saying, uh, and I, I would encourage people to you know just kind of listen to this one. If you if you normally listen at fast speed, <laughs> slow it down. 
so so that you can really kind of drink in the ideas. Um, so thanks thanks a lot for being on. I know that you don't do this too often, and uh, we'll try to try to impose upon you in season four to do it a little bit more often. Thanks. Thanks very much, David. Bye bye. Bye bye.